right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. This time, for real, the final episode of 2019, final episode of the decade. Uh, it's been it's a holiday medley, highlights show, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're trimming this down to just one episode this year. I know it was two last year. Hope it helps you get through your holiday travels. And uh, if you're starving for more, I hope this motivates you to go back to a podcast episode you might have skipped or missed early in the year, or maybe even listen back to one you've already heard. I know personally for me, I really enjoy putting this together because despite even being there for the interviews and editing a lot of them, I often forget about some of the amazing stories a lot of our guests have told, and it's great to be reminded of them. And uh, it just it does even if it's been nine months or six months, you can you can listen to a whole episode and forget you've already heard it because uh, a lot of the guests have just told some amazing stories uh, over the past year, and I've uh, really enjoyed hearing them. I know a lot of you guys have as well. I'm going to squeeze in a couple thank yous before we call it a year. First off, to you, the listeners, we truly appreciate you spending so much time with us this past year. You guys have a lot of options when it comes to golf podcasts, and it means a lot to us to continue to see this thing grow significantly year over year. I try to uh, only ask listeners to do this once a year, but a rating, a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts helps us out a lot. Uh, it takes two seconds to do, and it is sincerely appreciated I know people often ask how else they can support us besides listening. I say just just tell a friend. Uh, the highlight ups are a great start. I think this is a very forwardable episode. If you think uh, someone might like the podcast or maybe even isn't even isn't even into podcasts, they're a lot easier to do than people. Uh, some people get overwhelmed with the technology, but they're not that difficult. Forward this episode to them. I think it's pretty representative of what they would hear over the course of the year on a pod, and maybe it would inspire them to go back and listen to uh, listen to some full interviews. Um, there's something in here for everyone. I think we'd like to we'd like to think. I know this podcast is not for everyone, but if you like hearing from Champions Tour guys, top PGA Tour guys, uh, lower level PGA Tour guys, Corn Ferry guys, LPGA players, architects, or even Big Randy, I think that is here in this episode. It's all there. So tell a friend uh, that maybe isn't uh, maybe isn't into it yet. That is something that can uh, really help us out a lot as well. Thank you again to all the guests who came on this year. Us, I know us as hosts and the listeners, very grateful that very busy people are willing to sit down for sometimes hours and tell very personal stories about themselves. Uh, I think they get a lot of benefit out of it, but us as listeners, again, get the most out of it. Thank you again to our official podcast partner, Callaway Golf. It's been the third year we've worked with these guys, and the relationship just keeps on getting better. Either the equipment is getting better as well, or we might actually be better getting better at golf. I think the first part of that is a lot easier to believe than the last half. I can say the Epic Flash and the Truvis truly did change my game this year. I can't wait to see what they've got lined up for next year. I know Xander has already put the new driver in play. Uh, you're going to have to rip the Epic Flash out of my hands, but uh, they keep one-upping themselves, so... Uh, they've keep, they've earned my trust, and I know they've earned a, lot, a trust of a lot of people that have uh, have shopped with them in the last uh, several years. They've had a lot of turnover in their marketing department and lost some guys that we've really liked working with. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking us if the partnership is going to continue. We're happy to report they will be back and better than ever next year. We got some great ideas for some video projects. Uh, one of my favorite things we did all year last year was the driver video, which is it sounds like it's a, a about a golf club, but it's actually related to 
the driver of the Callaway truck, Kevin Napier. He specializes in tweaking clubs and uh, for professionals on tour, but he also drives the truck from location to location. Uh, Randy Tron and DJ did a ride along with him, and it's it that 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 video is like one of my favorite ones. I know it's uh, some people don't love sponsored content, but if you can't get on board with that, then I don't know. I don't know what we're doing here. That was uh, awesome work by the guys. So if you do get a chance, check that out on YouTube. And if you get a chance, hey, thank the Callaway guys as well. If you run into them or you do it on social media or whatever for for supporting our little weird operation, they don't have to do this, uh, but they do, and they help make this this show possible. And uh, us us being able to live this dream out, uh, it wouldn't be possible without them. So they're the best to partner with. They never try to control our content, never control what we say, and they are constantly coming up with great ideas for us. So can't wait to see what uh, what we're able to put together next year. One final thank you again to Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-C-T-I-V. I didn't even know what CB- CBD was before this year. We tried it out uh, for several months, came to love it, and took them on as a partner because we do love their product. It's a water-based CBD product. Um, a lot of other products on the market are oil-based. Your body does not like oil as much as it does water. I love it at night. It helps me sleep a lot better. Neil and DJ are drops-in-the-coffee kind of guys in the morning. Uh, you can do both. You don't have to be one or the other. I had a headache last night, and I went straight for the CBD, and I swear it did go away. Check them out. Promo code NLU20 for 20% off your order. You guys, you can't be stacking the discount discount codes. I see your hustle. I respect it. A lot of people messaging us that NLU20 is not working, but that just means you're hustling a bit too hard. You can't use the 10% off plus the 20% off. Just use NLU20. That's 20% your order, off your order at herbalactive.com, U-R-B-A-L. ACTIV. Got any questions about CBD? Check out their frequently asked questions. It's very helpful. They got a good blog post on how much CBD can help you sleep and whatnot. There's zero THC in it. It's totally legal, totally cool, totally fair. Again, thanks to Herbal Active. They've been a great supporter of the podcast this year as well. All right, without further delay, here is a bunch of highlights I picked out from the year. This is probably not a perfect list. I'm sure I'm leaving some off. I'm sure I've left some in here that you're wondering why they're in here. You know, there's some really great episodes that I went back and, you know, there's not just a really good digestible one or two minute clip. Um, it's not necessarily just the whole context of the of the conversation is better than a it's not really clickbaity is what I, I guess I'm getting at. But uh, I did my best to, to accumulate some stories. Some you'll hear from a couple people more than once. You'll hear a couple stories that are over five minutes long and whatnot. Uh, but first up, easily my favorite story of the year. This is episode 233 with Jason Bone on his million dollar ace. Oh, yeah, the million-dollar ace, baby. <laughs> like, I still smile. You came that out early, 1992 didn't you? When, yeah, so I turned pro well you before came you. came out. Oh, yeah, I think you did. Yeah. Uh, kind of had to. Yeah, so, what was your amateur career up to, like, okay, to that point? Okay, I sucked as an am. I was no good. I was from Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, played. No, no, man. I, I mean, I was a Pennsylvania kid. Like, I didn't have anything. I had some scholarship offers in the Northeast to play some college golf, and I wanted to go in the South to play, and so I did a recruiting trip to Alabama, and the University of Alabama was at that time was the only team that would allow walk-ons. And so I was like, I'll take the chance. And the coach said, if you walk on, I'll give you a partial scholarship. And I was like, great. I didn't care. I just wanted to play golf and um, somewhere in the South because I wanted the weather. So I go down to Alabama, I walk on, and um, I redshirt my freshman year. Then the beginning of my sophomore year, they have this charity fundraiser, hole-in-one competition to restore a home that wasn't burned in the Civil War. I, it was a dollar ball. I had to hit it within a six-foot circle. It was done on the driving range. You could buy a million balls if you wanted. Every time you hit it within the six-foot circle, it qualified you for the semifinals. I had 10 bucks, which I actually borrowed 
Um, <laughs> and I uh, hit one ball in the six foot circle. And they did this over the course of a weekend every month. And at the end of the month, then they brought all the semifinals qualifiers back and they, you would all hit. So if you had 10 shots, you, uh, they measured the 12 closest. They were just trying to get eliminate down to 12. Well, the night before is Halloween. I'm 19 years old, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And let me tell you, there's costume party on every street corner. <laughs> and I think I visited every single one of them. Uh, I didn't get into about 4.30 that morning and had had a lot of Halloween punch. And I didn't make it to my bed. It was on the living room. I passed out on the living room floor. And my roommate came in the next morning. and was like, hey, man, you got that hole-in-one competition, you know, the semifinals and the thing or whatever. And I'm like, nobody's going to hit a hole-in-one, you know. I'm like, I'm so hungover. I just like, just leave me alone. And so he's just, he waits a few minutes and then he kind of kicks me and is like, hey, you got to go. And I'm like, all right, the only reason why I'm going is to hear you shut up. <laughs> so I get up, I drive out there to the university golf course and there were about 150 qualifying shots to be hit. And they put everybody's name in the bag and they pulled my name third. And I was like, this is great. If I had a shitty shot, I'm going right back to bed. Well, I hit it like three feet, nine inches. So now I've got 147 shots. I got to sit there oh, and God. wait and watch. On a November 1st and a humid November 1st in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I'm going out and I'm laying on the range and I'm just kind of fall asleep. And my coach comes up and he is, he can tell I had had a rough one last night. He just starts kicking me and he's like, man, you're a disgrace to the team. <laughs> and, you know, like, come on. Like, you know, and I'm, I was just, you know, I was like, oh, I can't hear it. You know, the bells are ringing in your head. You're just like, this sucks. And so I was, I was the third closest shot in the final. And so. There was one other teammate of mine who had qualifies. Kid's name was Greg Letson, and uh, the coach was all proud because this guy was a nice, groomed young man. And he put him in the cart, and I stood on the back of the cart, and I'm hanging on with my clothes on my shoulder. And because we were, all this had been done on the driving range, and now we're going to the actual hole to hit the shot. And he's trying to explain to us that if we win a prize of more than five hundred dollars, that we could lose our eligibility. And they had prizes for all twelve of us. So he's like, we got to make sure that, you know, you, this is NCAA rules. You don't screw it up. And I'm over there. I'm reaching down, leaning into the cart. I'm like, man, I'm turning pro today. Come, come, turn pro. <laughs> you know, and he's just like, you're such an idiot. I mean, you could tell. It's just so disgusting. I get there. Since I was the third closest shot, they wouldn't let us use our own ball. They gave us a top flight tour at the time. And right now it's maybe 1.32 in the afternoon. I'm just ready to go to bed. And I toss the ball on the ground. I don't even tee it up. And I hit this little heel cut nine iron and it's looking pretty good. I'm like, oh, this is going to get pretty close. Two hops, wham, hoops it, million bucks, throw my club up in the air. I start racing to the green and I'm high stepping and I'm just going nuts. And my body halfway to the green says, that's it. And it just gives out. I hit the turf. I'm rolling up the hill. I'm trying to get up. I can't get up. I mean, it was awful. I had dust and dust all over me. And and then and it was filmed too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It's on. It's it, yeah. They had to film it Is for it insurance reasons. Or? Wow. Uh, no, oh, yeah, it's probably on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. you probably see it on YouTube. But we'll put that up with the, yeah, we'll with have to the find uh, that podcast. Notes. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. I've seen it in, uh, like a million times. Yeah, but uh, and so, but the, the, the all right to kind of continue the story. So anyhow, I like um, at the end, all the other guys had to hit too because if everybody makes all in one, everybody gets a million bucks. So I was kind of pulling for other guys, you know. The next guy just cold shanks it because I had taken like 15 <laughs> minutes running up there, get my ball, like screaming. I mean, I, to be it was my first hole-in-one ever as oh, a golfer. Really? And so I'm sitting there. I was, I think, as excited about the hole-in-one part as I didn't, the million bucks didn't really hit me like at that moment. It was the hole-in-one. Like, oh, shit, I made a hole-in-one. This is great. But my coach is standing there after the whole thing's over. We're in the pro shop and 
there's a sheriff there for the witness and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, if you sign this, you know, he's trying to explain to me, he's like, okay, you, you will lose your scholarship. You will not ever be able to play. I mean, he's right in the middle of a sentence. And I'm like, where is the, where's the fucking pen? Where's the pen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I'm, I, I it's might a million like a moron, dollars. It's a million truck dollars. Where's the pen? I got to sign this thing. And so I uh, sign it. And then, uh, that, I mean, I, uh, Oh, yeah, I don't mean to keep dragging this on, no, but it's the, great. The, the great part about the story is is after the fact of hitting the home one. So it's Tuscaloosa. It's a Sunday night and it's a dry county until midnight. Uh, and so at I, so I'm just going nuts. Like I'm running around like I'm getting everybody. I'm like, hey, w- let's go to the tower. Whatever you can get out. Get me the cash. We're going to go down. We're going to party like it's 1999. And yeah. uh, it was actually 92. So we're, we're, we're <laughs> yeah, futuristic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That meant something like this. But, uh, and uh, so I, I round up $1,100 from all my buddies. And I have this IOU statement. I still have the statement that says uh, who I owed and how much. And um, I, I, I go down to this bar. It's called the Brass Monkey. And we start pounding on the door at 1145 at night. And this bartender's just looking at me like, you know, and I guess it was the owner. I don't even know. And I pull out the cash and start waving it. Well, he comes shuffling over to the door (laughs) and he's like, how can we help you? And I said, I had one hell of a day. Here's, here's the, I gave him all 1100 bucks. I said, just tell us when we're done. And there were like seven of us or 10 of us went in there the first time. And by 3.30 that morning, they had opened up the rib shack next door. (laughs) Everybody was in there. I mean, the place was going nuts. And the best part about the whole thing is they had it on ESPN. SportsCenter picked it up. And Keith Uberman ran the thing. And so everybody, we're all in there in their pool hall, got two beers. I'm 19. So I had to show a fake ID to get in. And I'm standing there and I got two beers in my hands. Everybody's like, shut up, here it is, here it is. Everybody gets real quiet in this bar. There had to be 150 people in this bar. It was a tiny <laughs> little bar. Uh, they said they flash up 19 year old, and I'm like, oh, oh no. shit! And I'm like, I'm gonna win a million dollars and go to jail on the same day. I'm like, there's not gonna be many people that are gonna be able to do that. But it was great. The owner of the bar came out, put his arm around me, and said, "You don't say anything. I don't say anything, and I'm paying your cab fare home." I'm like, done deal, baby. 7 a.m. Yeah. that morning, they kicked us out. It was great. It was wow. so much fun. So then what do you do next? Do you just, like, do you get a check in the mail a week No, you got to tell them how you did it. You just, how, how, when, uh, yeah, how it was you a, decided. It was a big, drawn yeah. out story. It was pretty weird. Like, the insurance company obviously comes to you, and it's, it, the way it was initially set up was a uh, 20-year annuity. So I would get 50000 a year for 20 years. And they came to me, and they were like, all right, we're going to make you a, a lump sum buyout offer. And so I was like, all right, let's hear it. It was like $167,000. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I know I'm in Alabama. I know I'm 19, but I'm like, I might not be the smartest you know, person in the world, but I know if I just stayed in school and kept the 50 grand for the next four years, I'm going to have more than that. I'm like, you know, I'll just pay earned income on my taxes. And I was like, you know, we need to be somewhere around that between four and 500,000 for me to think that if I were to stick it all away, pay taxes on it, invest it, that'd be worth more. And so I just ended up taking... The 50 grand a year for 20 years. And every November 1st, it would come and uh, it would be in the mailbox. And I would pull out the video and I would make my family sit on the couch and I'd <laughs> pop in the video and I would play that video over and over. And they were just like, no, we're not <laughs> yeah. anymore. Yeah. So the last one where you, were yeah, you it all was 2012. Out? Uh, I don't even think we watched the video. I think it was such Day a disappointment. Yeah. Like, oh, it was, but yeah, I got it. So I collected all, all uh, 50 checks or all 20. Uh, 
checks for 50 grand. So it was pretty cool. Next up, one of the great storytellers in the game of golf, episode 204 with Steve Elkington on Colin Montgomery. I don't know if these stories are true or not, but he tells such a great story. We're including this one in here for sure. What uh, What's your favorite Monty story? Oh, Monty's well, amazing. It took us, it took us, you know this is... You, like, I've been trying to it, wait. It took us yeah. everything not to lead yeah. with this. I couldn't believe yeah. you guys hadn't gotten there. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we're 40. You like, I gotta get there. You knew the story. <laughs> Monty's... Uh, Monty, you know... You guys, do you, do you know that he went to Houston Baptist University? No, do you no, even, I did do you not. even know that? Is uh-huh. Monty like misunderstood? Or is he oh just... yeah, Monty's the greatest. Yeah, he's just. I mean, a... we, I mean we, I, we love him, but genuinely, we partly yeah. love him because I, he's, he's the greatest. So much flack over the years. Monty yes. is the greatest. Uh, he's just he just gets himself in more trouble than you know. But you know, when I won the PGA course, he went, so, okay, so he went, so, so we have history, right? He went to Houston Baptist University. Which okay? I didn't even know that was a, yeah. a place or a thing. And there's a guy named Tim Thielen. You know who he is? He's like yeah. the PGA club pro champion. He was on Monty's team. So Monty was like the second best player on the team at the time. And I was at University of Houston. We were winning everything and we were playing it. Monty was on working the range at Lockenbach Golf Club. And I said, what are you doing? What are you doing over here? Fat tits, what are you doing here? <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, he says, I'm going back to England next week. I'm going to apply for a job at IMG. I said, well, why the fuck would you do that? That's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Well, you know, I can't really play. I'm not very good. And I said, well, let me tell you something, Monty. You're fucking really good. Oh, really? You think I'm that good? I said, here's what I think you should do. Mate, you should go back to England and you should try for the tour school. And then if you don't get in that, then go work for IMG. How's that for a fucking idea, Monty? (laughs) Uh, Really? You think I could do that? I said, yeah, I think you could. So he does. And, you know, seven whatever he's won later, won all that. So when I beat him at the PGA in 95... As you could imagine, the next day for me was, you know, the next week was, a, you know, a lot of going on, right? But I, and, and this is well known, that I, I stopped everything and wrote a letter to Monty and said that, you know, I congratulated him on how good he played at the PGA because basically our stats were the same and I, I, I beat him by one putt to win a major and I know he wanted as much, as much as I wanted mine. I just wanted him to know that I was thinking about him on that day, this day, that I was winning and it could have easily been him. So I wrote that to him. So that we got to put that in the file, okay? So then we went over to play the world match play, and he, we both get through two or three rounds, and now I'm going to play with Monty in the semis, right? And the, and the press over there. Where is was like, this? Is it Wentworth. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's the biggest, stuffiest club. Talk about a bunch of fucking racists, those English people over there. They don't even let you in. They, you wouldn't get in with that facial hair, lad. That facial hair's got to go. You can't be in here like that. They won't even let you in the clubhouse with trainers on. What the fuck's a trainer? (laughs) Are you talking about tennis shoes? Oh, you can't come in in here with those. Okay, whatever. So so we're going to play the semifinal match, and it's a 36-hole match, and the press is, it's it's a rematch of Elkington versus Monty of the PGA, blah, 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 blah. Bullshit, all this bullshit. So... It's 36 holes. So one day. One day. So uh, we go out, and I told my wife, I said, look, this fat son of a bitch is going to be out for me today. I'm going to have to play my ass off to beat him. 
And I think I shot about seven under in the morning to be one up on this guy. I mean, this guy can play. He hits it so straight. I mean, it's hard to beat. So we go into this big, you know, clubhouse and uh, where the players only, and they've got this huge buffet down the middle of the club. And Bonty's over there at this huge table looking out over the gardens and the fucking observatory. And he's got about four or five royal royal palace people there and and the captain from Muirfield and the captain there. from Muirfield was there <laughs> is it drafty in here to you <laughs> anyway so out in the middle out in the middle of the uh of the uh buffet is this custard castle the the clubhouse at Mu- at at Wentworth is a castle it's a fucking castle it's got all those little you know squares at the top you know, and uh, it's custom. It's fucking magnificent. It's it's uh, it's unreal. So anyway, I'm sitting over there having like a cheese sandwich because I can't I can't eat when I'm pl- playing. I can't eat much. Can you? No, uh, don't worry. Don't I, answer I that. You've never, never played a thirty. You've never played a thirty-six hole match with the World Cup. The wrong people here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we're gonna go back out in like thirty minutes. So Monty gets up. <clears throat> he goes over to the table. He's already had lunch, by the way. Grabs a dinner plate, goes over to this custard castle with his big fork, and he fucking takes out the whole ladies' locker room. He takes out the pro shop, the fucking upper deck on the back observatory, and puts it all under his plate. I couldn't fucking, I couldn't believe that he's just done. I said, he's going to feed the whole table. He's going to take 12 spoons over there and put this out in the middle. They just destroyed it. Nope. Nope, he sat at the end of the table and he fucking ate it all. I turned to my wife and I said, honey, there's not a man alive that can eat that much custard that can beat me. So how'd the afternoon go? Oh, I rolled him like five and four. He he, he, he couldn't go in the afternoon. Next up, Jordan Spieth, episode 206. This is just before the Masters, talking about some of the things he's been dealing with in his swing, his swing feels, and how he's addressing them. The feeling to me is that it's still not where it needs to be. There's still something slightly off, and we finally got on top of it recently. We finally figured it out, and now it's just a matter of repetitions. And it's I, I started putting extremely well. I've putted better this year, and uh, even at the players, I think I led the field, and, and it feels the putting feels back to where putting and chipping where it needs to be. And it's just kind of now getting into that full swing. And, the, and it's all, it's funny how similar it's all related. Like some, for me, I've never had uh, to work on um, something uh, mechanical in my putting and had it be the same problem in the full swing. That's the uh, the eye alignment you were talking about? Well, yeah, it, it's more of um, that started to cause me to get behind and, and in other words, kind of body get out early and with putter, the, the hands get out and, and ahead early and therefore the club in turn becomes open and behind you and uh it's not a fun way to play the game right uh you play scared pretty much the whole time well you play yeah and and yeah exactly because it looms anytime the time. there's any kind of trouble right like my putts would miss right even though i'm trying to hit them left it, there's just nothing until you start to kind of just retrain exactly what it is and and i would say it was half cameron half me just through trial and error to to get it back and it's uh it feels good like i'm i'm excited i'm you like i mean for a while there it's like when when things are off and it it takes over like your sleep and everything like you're just you're like when you can't figure it out it's just 
I mean, when would you say it started? Uh, you know, it was in 2000, late 2017. I started to not really um, put the ball really great in that kind of off season fall. And then in 18, I just had a really rough start to the season putting and it started to get better towards the end of the year. I started to figure out a little bit and then kind of the ball striking got a little bit off in the middle of the season. So I normally have, it's weird. So I normally have one of three swing feels. I have my, what I call my, um, 2000, early 2017 feel or 2017. I played with a very similar swing feel the entire year. I needed to work on the same thing the whole year and I couldn't do, I couldn't do it too much. And, but it was all, it, it was the best. I it was the best I'd ever hit the golf ball. You were second on strokes gain T to green. Yeah, year. it was the best. Yeah, it was the best I ever hit it. My scoring average was lower than 2015 and in, in 2017, I was technically a better player in 2017 right. than 15, although everyone's on results. And so that's, that's what you look at. But, um, if, certain guys, um, or I, I time my better rounds at different places. My results are technically better there. Um, the idea is to have the lowest scoring average you can possibly have. You want to win the scoring title and results come from that. I have my, uh, swing feel I had at Tiger's event in 2014. I played really well. The masters in 14, a lot of 2014, I played from a swing feel. And then I have my one that I had in 2015. So I have these like three swing feels and what, what are the swing feels? Sorry. Yeah. One of them is like, um, Okay, I've gotten really turned inside and almost um, pointed too far to the right at the top. So I feel this kind of like sat back, flat, laid off backswing. And from there, it just feels nice and pocketed. That was my where I played 2014 a lot from. 2015, I had kind of overdone that a little. So I try and work this, you know, rolled open face early, get a nice real depth in my backswing. And then I need to kind of feel like I'm coming over the top of it from there. Uh, 2017, I played from this real, um, drag my left arm as low across my body as I can get that left arm nice and flat, um, and, and hinge that wrist angle to try and get it back over my head a little bit. My tendency from when I was 12 years old was to take the club, um, out and up and, and lay it off a little bit and then drop it from the inside and hit these big slinging draws. And when I started working with Cameron, it was to try and make that more consistent, closer to one plane, just get it back and through um, similarly. Uh, but my tendency is always to take it and not quite complete the backswing. And therefore, when I don't complete the backswing, uh, the lower body starts a little too quick and my miss is a little spinny um, right ball, which if you have one miss and it's just short right, you literally get away with that almost everywhere right. except for 12 at Augusta, which I didn't one year because that was my miss. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. And, uh, and, and that's just, you know, that I was hitting the ball poorly that week and every other hole you, you know, you run into it, you're fine and that's it. And, and I could, I've played golf that way for a long time. Well, that started to bug me that that was my miss. Well, how do I, how do I compensate? How do I make sure that that miss isn't there? And it would only really come up under pressure because I would get a little too quick and I wouldn't have the patience to complete my backswing. Well, now none of those swing feels worked. And I was trying all three of them, uh, different times through the end of, uh, through the middle to end of last season. And none of them were, were really feeling good through, and I wasn't getting consistent ball flights. And so I just had to try and think like, where exactly is it getting off? And I start using video more than I ever have to try and dissect it. And the problem is I'm not a very good instructor. Like I could be a good caddy. I'd be a really bad swing coach. 
You can't because, diagnose yourself. Because I'm looking at it from one viewpoint behind. I'm not looking at it from a face-on view to see that I'm actually almost like stack and tilt, like stacked, and I'm moving forward. And that's what's causing it to look a certain way from behind. Instead, I'm trying to make it look Adam Scott from behind mm-hmm. and and just I like I'm like, but when I make it look Adam Scott from behind, I'm even more stuck, which makes sense if you're stacked and you try and tip it even more. So it's been this kind of, uh, you know, this, this retraining over the last, I would say month, you know, January was rough hitting the ball. And then from then it's been a little better each time. And, uh, and with the putting coming around too, and now really figuring out a nice, I mean, you saw on the range today, I was working with Cameron. We're just hitting, you know, same ball flight, same ball flight, play as many of those draws as you can draw, draw, draw. Next up from episode 201. This is first of two from Kiradek Abby Bonrat, our uh, players championship recap. Let's sing the, the the good golf swing like Adam Scott. Yeah. Okay. I was dreaming like I, I couldn't have the golf swing like Adam Scott if I practice there. I got swing like him. I can just practice three hours per day. But the the swing like me, I have to practice six hours per day because I I mean I need more hitting more to let the mem uh, the the memories to remember what's the movement of the bodies compared with Scott, which is like very nice and yeah. you know. But look other way. If I'm like him, I might not playing golf. He's you know he looks good, smart. I mean somewhere <laughs> in Hollywood, maybe. I mean that's why he just walk in the golf course. He looks he's too good for the golf course. <laughs> I think it's only spot that I mean you're I mean short and big, fat guy can playing. Yeah, it's only spot. I I bet you never seen like the guy like me run around in soccer or basketball field. Yeah, for sure. How you how are gonna run? Ninety minutes. Do you imagine? Yeah. It's only a spot that I can play. And <laughs> playing with Scotty, I sometimes it looks funny to me. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing this? And it's the best. He should be on the catwalk or somewhere. Golf golf needs more swings. <laughs> yeah. Like yours. I really yeah. I I truly believe that. What was it like at the Olympics then for you? I mean Oh <laughs> man, when you walk into the village that all the athletes. Yeah. Well, you have to sing all the boxer, all the um, like gymnastic or running guys. Just go run around, and just you know look at them like, what are you doing? Why you have to run? Why you have to work out, man? Just sleep. You wake up at five or what? We just wake up at ten and playing twelve. Yeah, but and then they eat just like cat eating. You know? Yeah, just you know three bite and then done. No, we just eat what you want. Ice cream, sweet, whatever it is. They never enjoy life. Treat I will yourself. tell you that. I love it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to live, though. I just want to enjoy every bite that I take in. And for good measure, one more from Kiradek. Well, I, I, I want to have a kid. Yeah. But it's not coming yet. I've been dead with my, my wife for 11 years. I've been married for three years. It's, but it's not happening yet. I'm working on it. I'm keep practicing. <laughs> I'm on the making process, but it's not that easy, you know. It's not sharp enough like iron playing. You're deep in the process. Yeah, yeah. I just you know, sometimes my iron is like solid, but <laughs> something it doesn't that solid. So I have to working on it. Maybe the sharp is not strong enough. You have to build build a new shop, maybe. Listen, that that could you know we got to experiment with the equipment a little bit. I yeah, understand. It's, just, I guess, to, yeah, yeah. I have to work on it, <laughs> but I got it very soon. I'll let you guys know. Okay, good. <laughs> the next clip is from episode two forty eight with Justin Thomas, his annual visit. I think this was our best one we'd ever done. Here is a story on uh, Tiger Woods' son. 
Charlie, his little boy, is he's amazing. He's Apple definitely doesn't far fall from the tree there. I mean, he's identical to Tiger and just such a little smart aleck. And um, so them, Erica and the kids and his mom, Rob, they're all sitting in the corner of the clubhouse as Tiger was kind of on, you know, 15, 16, 17. And I just went over to say hey to them and um, and what's up to Charlie. And uh, and I just kind of saw him. I said, what's up, what's up dude? And he just looks at me and goes, hey, oh, hey, look, it's the guy who can't putt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> that stuck with you a little Appreciate bit. Appreciate that. <laughs> Next clip is from episode 258 with Colin Montgomery talking about his relationship with crowds, the media, and everything else uh, in his evolution of how he's treated in the United States. Uh, yes, I mean, answer your, answer your two questions. We are well out of that time period yeah. now. I mean, uh, uh, the support I'm getting in America now is fantastic. So thank you to all the, all the fans and, and uh, supporters, spectators. That, that era is gone. But I didn't, I didn't help myself. Right. Okay, I'll have to be honest with you. And I, didn't, I did not help myself. In uh, what ways? Well, it was 1997 it started, really. Okay. Uh, uh, I was leading congressional in uh, the U.S. Open. I'd started well and uh, was still leading or tied for the lead playing the I'll never forget it playing playing the 27th hole of the event which was the ninth hole on the second day there was a rain delay and uh you know what happens in rain delays that crowd tend to go to the bars and, oh yeah you know because one it's dry and two it's wet if you know what I mean <laughs> and uh and uh so I came out after that and somebody said something and I answered back and it's a thing you don't do mm-hmm. and I did do and and that I regret I gave an inch and it was, and a mile was taken, you know, really. And and it, and it's anything in life when you, when you make a mistake, you, you know, it's a sort of two second mistake, but it takes a few years to actually get over that, you know. And I'm glad we're over it now. And it's and it's a, a lovely place to play. I mean, I've always I've always had a huge respect for America, the whole scene of America, the whole might of America. I've always had a massive, uh, uh, love affair for it in many ways. And it was a shame that I. I I made a mistake by answering back and, and uh, somebody heckled and I answered back. And then, of course, it just it was on TV and, of course, it got worse. And, and that was that. But uh, it was unfortunate and, and uh, I, I blame myself. But at the same time, it's to answer your second question again, it's changed dramatically. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a complete reversal. And I'm really, really enjoying myself now. Has that changed because of, would you say that, people have evolved or have you handled it differently which has caused, well, caused you to come out of it? I think it's a few things. I think, yes, uh, uh, people have evolved, people have matured, we all have, you know. I have personally as well. I'm I'm giving back. The crowd are, are noticing that they're giving back and also I think the Champions Tour is a slightly less stressful place to play. Sure. Anyway, so I think there's three things there that uh, uh, the Champions Tour is the tour to play on. They all say that and, and, uh, and I can... Having witnessed it and and uh, having through it now, uh, I can honestly say, you know, there's a great comradeship between the players before and after after the round, more so than the PGA Tour. But then it's amazing when the gun goes Friday morning or Thursday morning, if it's a four rounder. Uh, it's amazing. It's competitive. Oh right. my God, it's competitive. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is what it's supposed to be. Sure. You know. Yeah. Next up, episode two sixty one, the episode that undoubtedly helped me with my personal game the most this year. Brendan Todd talking about the yips. It was hard to pick a certain part of this interview because the whole thing is so good. But I especially enjoyed this part, and I highly suggest going back to this one. Episode 261, Brendan Todd. Yeah, a yip is when you can do something automatically, um, a movement automatically that you've done 
probably thousands, ten thousands of times, which is the golf swing for me or the putting stroke for, for any pro. Yeah. Putting, chipping, golf swing. We've all done it ten plus thousands of times. And in a way, it's really automatic. You go up and down the range at a PGA Tour event and everybody hits it good. They putt it good. They chip it good. But you see guys in baseball, basketball, free throws, um, probably archery, field goal kickers, golfers, they get what's described as the yips where they're performing an automatic motion that they've done tens of thousands of times. And when it comes time to do it in competition, they have a performance anxiety or a mental block that causes their motor pattern to stop working the same way and kind of spaz out. And so what, what was your yip in particular? The ball's going way right. Is it just at impact? You had trouble closing the club face. You're coming over the top. I don't understand the call. <laughs> right. Well, so right. I can't so keep going. But. For me, the, the thing that was so frustrating about it is that, you know, you, we pro golfers work on our, all golfers work on our routines and we get our routines dialed in to be the same every time. And that's what a sports psychologist would tell you is going to be the answer to, you know, hitting the ball consistently well. Well, I've had the same routine at this time for like six or seven years. And now I've had it for probably 10 years. So why all of a sudden did that routine stop working for me? Well, when I would get over the ball and I would take my last look at the target and I would take my last waggle, by the time I start pulling the club back, I've got so much pressure in my hands and my arms and my brain is literally just like, oh my gosh, don't hit it right. And for me, all that extra tension in my hands and arms led to a faster transition at the top and then a little bit of a steeper downswing and just no time to square the face up, as mm-hmm. you said, at impact. Hmm. And that's and the thing is, like I said, we hit 70-some shots around or 60-some shots around. And it didn't happen every time, but it would happen for some reason a few times around, just enough to shoot 74 instead of 70. Enough to throw fear in you, I imagine, not be able to play with confidence because the way you guys aim shots and the way you guys approach shots, you can't stand over a ball and fear it going some direction. It's like, no, I've got to hit it at this target. And so I imagine you have played at least, you know, to the point where you've got to be extremely successful and competitive that the way you're aiming is very different than when things started to go wrong. Yeah, so the difficult part for me was it did change the way I aimed. I'm all of a sudden aiming to more general targets. I'm aiming just in the middle of greens, in the middle of fairways, and it was more difficult to create that visual that you want over the ball saying, okay, this ball is going to start right center, and it's going to turn left center, and it's going to get 10 feet right of the flag, or you know, it's going to start in the edge of the left rough and just fade into the middle of the fairway. And like you said, when a professional golfer is on, their aim is very specific, the picture in their head is very clear, and you know we are able to get um, you know hit it very close to the hole. Next up, episode two sixty three. This is Harry Higgs, one of the up and coming players on the PGA Tour, telling a a pretty damn funny story from his days on the Latino America Tour. Cordoba, Argentina. They have one in ten. Our ten's like a hundred fifty yard par three downhill, and one's like a three hundred ninety yard par four going the other way so everybody tees off from there and the sponsors from the event bring in like three or four or five girls and they all have you know like shorter golf skirts on with they are like the sponsored t-shirt okay and it's to my knowledge at least everybody there all the sponsors wanted to kind of have like the three or four or five of the best looking women so it was a competition and they all are around one in ten and then on 18 to this, usually the traditional Sunday flag is like back right. 
so one in 10 are really hard tee shots. These girls don't really know anything about golf anyway, but they're just these beautiful women all around. There's like 60 of them just staring at you. They don't really know what's going on, but they're just staring at you. Almost always holding umbrellas and looking all nice. And one year, the first year I'm there, I finish up and I'm in like 15th or so. And this is going to be my best finish of the year so far. And it's like fifth or sixth event. And I hit it like 12 feet short and left of this back right hole. And those grandstands are right, like literally three to four paces from the flag. Like you could easily mm-hmm. just kill, just whoop the grand. Like yeah. you could just land it in the back fringe and just hit somebody's shin and it just comes back. Like it was so aggressive. It was so aggressive. I was looking at my putt thinking like, I can't even get behind the hole. to. I don't want to squat down in front of these people. Like, so I kind of walk back. I do. I wind up walking back behind the hole. And I get my read, and I come back on the other side, and I like you know get you squat down, and I'm looking through, and the girls are in the front row, and sure enough, you look ball hole, and some of these girls were not sitting lady very ladylike, and it's just like, how am I gonna make this putt? Like what? How do you focus on your read? Like this is ridiculous. And sure enough, I left a 12-footer short. (laughs) Next up is Lizette Salas. This is from episode 225, our KPMG Women's PGA Championship recap and event. We've uh, really enjoyed going to the last couple of years. Uh, Lizette is Mexican, and she grew up playing golf uh, with not a ton of support outside of her family. She heard things such as, Mexicans don't play golf, and she speaks on that. It was a very fun interview. This was probably the most serious part of it, uh, but I uh, really enjoyed her perspective on uh, on her background and how she was able to be successful in golf. I just, obviously, I've had a lot of support, and I thank everyone for that. Um, but, you know, you you come across people that, don't really understand the opportunities that golf could give a, a female athlete, um, or really just don't don't think of outside their box and very and set expectations based on race or ethnicity. And I've always been curious as to why, you know, if someone has the talent and the ability to do it, why why say things that would you know put them down? And so. I mean, I've even heard it from family members, just told, like as a kid, you would hear that and it's very, very hurtful. And, but I've been lucky enough to have parents that just say, you know what, don't even listen to them. Like you're, you're good enough and you could do this. And I mean, if it wasn't for my parents, I seriously, I would not be here today. And even my sister or yeah, my sister, I'm going to call her out. She would refuse to come watch me. (laughs) Um, I mean, she had three kids, so I know it was tough, but she goes, I, she's like, eh, I'll just, I'll watch you when you turn pro. So every like ANA Wilshire tournament, I'm like, you remember you're coming out. You got to watch me. Remember? She's like, I know, I know. But, um, back on the serious note, yeah, it was, um, super hurtful. And I just, that was kind of my motivation to just prove everyone wrong. And I've always just had that little chip on my shoulder and I think it's worked out in my favor. And I just want to kind of pave the way for younger, the younger generation. And to, you know, I don't want them to have to deal with that. 
Up next, episode 197. This was probably the surprise interview of the year for me. This is Morgan Hoffman. Uh, we're going to play another one of his clips later. But this was his story about flying his own plane, how he uh, takes life in his own hands with his plane and flies it anywhere he wants, as well as the scariest moment he's had in the sky. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's the most fun. Of it. My, my fiancé now and I, we are notorious for like just – having a day off and sitting around and being like, Hey, you want to go down to Key West, ride some scooters, have some key lime pie and then for dinner and come back. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it's so sick. And then how long does that take to get down there? Uh, 45 minutes. Oh my God. That's awesome. But it's like a four and a half hour drive. So it's pretty incredible. Um, and then when I'm at tournaments, it's, it's even more fun. Like, um, the last time I was in Greensboro for the Wyndham, we went over to, nashville for dinner one night and then like it's just cool to have that freedom once again what what's the scariest moment you've had in any at any point taking off landing or in the air um the scariest was probably when i was still only a private pilot so visual flight rolls not instrument and i was flying at night and dropping a buddy back off in orlando and orlando's class bravo airspace and um you need to follow the air traffic controller's instructions to a t and know their lingo and um so i was kind of new to it and i dropped them off it's like nine at night and i knew that there was a thunderstorm kind of near the airport and i knew that the ceiling which is the lowest part of the clouds was three thousand feet and i didn't want to go above that because i only had a short flight home so they were like all right my tail number was four three one six Foxtrot at the time, and they're like cleared the thirty five hundred and on two five zero heading whatever. And I was like, hey, I'd really like to just stay at three thousand if possible. They're like, no, the traffic volume is too high. You're cleared to thirty five hundred. It's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so I went and right as I hit three thousand as expected, hit the ceiling in the clouds went into a thunderstorm and my head hit the ceiling my oh. headphones came off it was pitch black there was like lightning around um and i get my headphones back on and the planes all over the place and all i hear is them calling my tail number and say turn left immediately there's a 737 headed directly at you oh. and i'm like in the clouds and it's night so you can't see anything outside and you're just looking at your instruments which I wasn't allowed to be doing at that point, you know, and, uh, they're like, all right, turn left to this heading. And I couldn't get the plane to turn left because the wind was too strong. And Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to just descend and get down to like 2000 and you guys can figure it out. And I got down and I could see again and they were like, talking to me like I was a child like hey buddy are you okay up there is everything all right and you know it was kind of comforting at the time because they I you never hear them break code or professionalism and you know it was nice to just hear that like comforting kind of voice like that they were checking in on me and uh, ever since then like that was probably within my first hundred hours of flying and um, now I'm almost at a thousand and that's kind of what stemmed my crazy planning techniques yeah 
Up next, episode 199. This is Francesco Molinari the day after he won at Bay Hill, telling the story of how they got the photo of he and Tommy Fleetwood, or the video, I guess, of he and Tommy Fleetwood with the Ryder Cup the night of the celebration. Yeah, it was pretty much middle of the party, like 2.30 in the morning, one of the <laughs> European Tour media guys pitched us the, the idea, and we were like, yeah, sure, but... You know, I think we it was a bit unfair because we were in conditions where we weren't really able to say no to to anything. So, yeah, we we so yeah, we, I think it was just the three of us that that knew about it. Maybe some of the agents yeah. had, had heard the the idea. So then we we decided to go up to the rooms, and uh, I didn't want to go to my room. Tommy didn't want to go to his room, so we ended up in the European Tour media guy room. <laughs> Well, tell us what Tommy did. Also, <laughs> we know the story. I'm going to make you tell it. <laughs> so we get there, and obviously the script was, you know, you get in bed and you say this and you say that, right? <laughs> so Tommy gets there and gets like fully naked and gets in bed. <laughs> and I told him, no, I'm not, I'm not going to get in bed like that. Sorry, but there, there needs to be at least some clothing. <laughs> so yeah, he put. The the minimum clothing possible <laughs> on and, and, <laughs> and we got in bed. So the media guy had to sleep in that bed after Tommy got naked in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> Next up is actually Big Randy. This is from our UK British Open recap, episode 232. This is the only one of the clips in here that is uh, of one of us talking, but it's his uh, putting Mr. McElroy, uh, laying him to rest after not winning a major this year. And he explains the bit a little bit, but here's Big Randy episode 232. So unfortunately, <laughs> tough transition. Rory, um, he's dead. <laughs> he has died. He has not won a major now in, in five years. Um, he, he came home to live out his last days. He spent them peacefully among friends. There will be a celebration of life. Uh, Is there a visitation? Asked, no. Well, it's family only. Uh, in lieu of flowers, <laughs> we ask that you uh, you all subscribe to Golf Pass. <laughs> um, but he is dead. I'm sorry to say he has died. There, there is no coming back. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, my God. Will you please explain he, the, the beginning of this say, bit? Yeah. Well, I just said at the beginning of the year, I, I kind of gave Rory an ultimatum where I, I was just getting tired of, you know, this is Rory's week. Will he win it? And I was like, listen, if you don't want a major this year, he's he's dead to me. He's he's gone. And here we are. He's oh he's dead. God. So who's next up? Well, doctors have just informed me. Um, <laughs> Dustin. Dustin Johnson has 12 months to live. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Eight months. Or, yeah, 12, 12 months. months. If, if, if he does not win a major uh, by the end of 2020, wow. it will, in fact, be fatal. <laughs> Next up is episode 246 with Mel Reed on her decision to come out. My fan base has become different, um, for sure. I mean, listen, I, I feel like people have just completely took on the sexuality side of it, which was not... I didn't expect it to get the attention that it did. But like I've said, you know, I feel like I can only speak on behalf of kind of the LPJ girls, but a lot of these girls give back in so many different ways, which is incredible, to like charities and their own organizations. Whereas for me, because I've been in it and I've seen the dark side of, of our community, of the LGBTQ community, like I, 
I see the struggles that a lot of people deal with and some of them have been my best friends you know so for me it was just important to kind of be brave enough to say like look I'm not you know people interpret so can sometimes interpret as as, as certain people and um, it was just important for me to kind of give back in that way and just you know be proud of who I am and you know that was that was kind of the big thing for me was just to be brave enough to to be you know normal about I hate yeah. the word normal but just right. to, for other people to be educated in it and be like look there's nothing has the, has it been it. Welco- a welcoming feeling yeah for sure I mean you know I got some really cool messages from the girls um, you know which actually meant a lot to me I was kind of a little bit nervous about how some of the girls would react um, because obviously we do have gay girls out here but some of them are going to be very private about it which I 100% respect um, and 100% understand as well but I had a lot of a lot of girls I didn't expect reach out to me and give me support which I thought was really really cool to be honest next episode 260 Billy Andrade talking about his relationship with Larry David and staying at his house in LA yeah, so Larry and I have friends through the Fairleys. Okay. Uh, they all live on Martha's Vineyard in the summer. And uh, I've been over there, played golf with them over there, and Larry. So Larry and I, we've been friends for a long, long time. And uh, so I just called him and said, hey, I'm coming out. Love to get together, maybe play a round of golf. Like last Wednesday, I wasn't in the Pro-Am, so maybe we can play on Wednesday. And then the fires hit, and he was not going to be in town. I was flying in on Monday to, to have dinner Monday night. I just was flying, actually flying in, and my phone blew up, and Larry t- uh, emailed me and said that because of the fires, he's home, and uh, we can do dinner. So I just left, the, you know, I got my courtesy car and drove up to Santa Monica and had dinner with him and ended up going to his house first, and we watched the end of the Nick game and then went out and had sushi. <laughs> and uh, so I had to play with it. So we took a fo- I said, let me take a photo, and we took a photo, and I said, well, you know, he's, I, I, I saw my life coach, my you know, sports psychologist. You know, all these young kids, got all they, they have their team. Sure. So I figured, uh, you know, who better than to, to be my life coach today at 55 years old than Larry? So I, I, oh, I, walk in the, I walk in the door, and the first thing he says is, you flew with shorts on? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. He goes, really? Is that weird? Is it weird? He, he goes, you didn't see the curb I did on that? And I guess there's a curb enthusiasm. He gets on an airplane, and the guy sitting next to him has got hairy legs, and <laughs> it really spooked him out. So <laughs> I've he, never he, thought of that. I have hairy legs, and I fly in shorts all the time. Yeah, me too. And I, I don't really have hairy legs, but um, I didn't think it was that big a deal, but uh, Larry uh, uh, thought well, it was. So give me a sense, Larry David... On camera versus off camera. I was no, going to say no, it's no difference. No difference. No, no okay. Difference. I was no hoping difference. you'd say that. I thought no, it was more. No is difference. he doing a bit with the shorts thing, or is he like dead serious? Like, no, he's dead. No, he's dead serious. Like, what do you? What? Do you, I can't believe that you wore shorts on a plane. I mean, it's just gross. You, know, you can't do that. You know, it's it's just inappropriate for him. But I've stayed with him for the LA Open um, one year, and he just got divorced, so he was staying in the condo on ocean avenue in santa monica where all the famous people go after they get divorced so um <laughs> i walked in one day and he there's was, a lot of quote air quotes being thrown yeah, around yeah, as you're saying yeah. that. and and i walked in one day and he was getting a massage from this woman and it was he was she was hurting him and he was just yelling and screaming <laughs> the whole time and it was just hilarious and then we went i took bill cost and i went to dinner with him this is a very very funny story so i just emailed him and said, hey, I'm coming in for the LA Open after Pebble Beach. You know, you got any room at the inn? And he says, yeah, you can stay, um, but you have to leave on Thursday because I got other people coming in. So I get there Sunday. He's got a girlfriend that came over and they're watching the Grammys and I went to bed. I was tired. I just flew in from Pebble. Now it's Wednesday and we're going to dinner 
and I got Bill Haas, and, and it, actually the, the table next to us was the Gretzkys with Dustin Johnson and the 16-year-old Paulina. That's when they met Whoa. that night, and they ended up hooking up and getting together, right? So that was the first time they met. How about that? They were next door Sheesh. at the next table over. But anyway, so we're walking in. And it's the first round. It's Thursday, and I got to check out, and I got to get a hotel room because Larry's got people coming in, and he had his buddy Nick Stevens with him, who's it was he's an agent uh, and did some stuff with Seinf- the Seinfeld stuff. So, as we're walking in, I've asked Larry three times, like you know, when do I need to leave? You know, check out. Like I'm playing late. Do I check out in the morning, or can I come back after? When are these when are these other folks coming in? And he said, No, you're good. And I said, Okay, you know. I asked him again. He said, no, no, you're good. You're good. So I don't know what that means. So we're walking into this restaurant. And I say to Nick, I go, Nick, what's the deal? I've asked him three times. He says he's got people coming in. I, I don't know when I need to leave. And he says, I'm good. He goes, he, he said, you're good. He goes, that means you made, you made the cut. I mean, what do you mean I made the cut? He goes, see, it's a Jewish thing. No Jew would commit to someone for a whole week if they don't really know him that well. <laughs> okay, so you commit for half a week, and then you know if I'm if a pain in the out, a- yeah. if I'm a pain in the ass, and he can just say, "Well, I got people coming in." He had nobody coming in. <laughs> yeah, that's that's brilliant. I so it. you know what? It's absolutely brilliant. So if you you know if you're you know we have a summer place in Rhode Island, and you know if, if we don't really know the folks coming in, say, "Hey, well, we can only go like three or four days," and then yeah. if which, can we come up for a few days in the summer? Then? Sure. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> no problem. But. Uh, it was really funny. So I made the cut, so I was there the whole week. So I, I, didn't, yeah. get, I didn't get kicked out. The next clip is from episode 255 with Brad Faxon. This was the one that I had the hardest time selecting a highlight from because it's just so good in large 8 to 10-minute snippets. I included one of the shorter clips here. I uh, could have included an 8 or 10-minute story, but we're going to keep it short here. Uh, I highly suggest listening to this episode. It's one of my favorites of the year, Brad Faxon, 255. Um, so, you know, if, if you're an instructor... I don't want to say a typical instructor, but if you're an instructor that's used to having a student come to you and putting everything on video and then breaking down the true mechanics of what's happened in that stroke, that stroke gets affected by a player's thoughts before they go there. And if there's doubt, if there's tentativeness, you know, if there's bad memories, if there's nerves that come kicking in, whatever you're seeing in the stroke, you can't measure those two things. And, and when, when you look at a player's statistics over a course of a year, uh, what's never measured is, and by the way, the shot link stuff's changing the game for sure. how players practice, what part of the game they have to practice. But, you know, I tell all my students, I hate to say students because I feel like I'm not, I'm not <laughs> like a teacher instructor really, but it's, um, I, I feel like I'm more of a friend. I, I don't know, sure. but it's, is there such a status strokes gained attitude? And you know, that's an immeasurable stat. And almost all players put their par putts better than they put their birdie putts. That's a, that's a fact. Yeah. It's a fact, but what, why mental? I mean, it's mental. mental, So it can't be technical. Can it? No. You know, if you, if you have 10 footers for par versus birdie and you make, you know, say you make 45% of those things, if they're for, uh, par and thirty percent if they're for birdie. How can that be technique? Right. 
Next up is Tom Doak from episode 243. This was uh, live from our event at the Summit at Common Ground. I uh, hope to uh, see a lot of people out at our events this coming year. Another one, another clip that was hard to, to just, uh, I guess another episode that was hard to select one highlight clip from because he speaks so eloquently in a, in a more long-form version. But here he is talking about misses on professional golfers and how that compares to recreational golfers. I found this really interesting. You know, some, like, pro golfers think that the penalties should be proportionate to the miss. And if you're really, really good, that makes all the sense in the world. But if we did that, then most of the people sitting in this tent right now would give up because we all miss shots all the time, much worse than Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy miss shots. So you can't do that. I mean, if you, if you, did, if you made every yard offline worse, most people would just give up the game in a hurry. You, you kind of have to do it the other way around. You have to make it where you can miss by a lot and it doesn't necessarily cost you too much, but it's really hard to get close and make birdie. But it's not really hard to move the ball forward and make par or bogey and get onto the next hole. Scott Van Pelt is up next. This is from our UK British Open preview, episode 230. This story came uh, highly recommended by people on Twitter for to be included in this episode about someone he uh, ran into uh, somewhere in some town before a uh, the final round of a playing of the Open Championship. I'll let him tell the story. Episode 230. I was out. You asked, do you go out? Yes, I was out. I saw a player, an American player, and he was absolutely... He was like a like a zombie, like a functioning zombie. That's how if you like he was he was completely, completely blotto drunk, took a wrong step off a, uh, off the step and uh, I mean, off the uh, curb and fell down in the street in front of me, but wasn't injured, was just laughing like, look at me. I'm drunk, blah, blah, blah. I immediately find out who is this person paired against tomorrow so that I can bet as much money as I can against this person. I can see where this is going from a mile away. Uh, of course you can. So what happens? I, I go, I go with like, this is early on in like the days of me covering it. Don't have a lot of money in the old account, but I'm going to unload and go against this guy. And I want to say he was like matched up against SKO or somebody <laughs> that made like a brief appearance on open championship leaderboards. And I don't know what he's doing at the moment. It might not have been SK Ho, but it was it was it was a player from Japan, and and all you need to know is that that player from Japan played pretty well on Sunday, but that American that fell down in the street in front of me was tied to the low round of the day on Sunday, oh my God. which is one of the great rounds ever played in golf history because eight hours earlier <laughs> he fell down in the street. So um, I, uh, I I learned my lesson there about the ability for certain players to play hurt and um, and why there's no such thing as a sure thing. Next up, episode 226 with Joel Damon. This is, I think, the only time I've ever heard him talk in long form on the incident. He had the rules incident he had with Sun Kang. Um, so here it is, episode 226, Joel Damon. So we're, <laughs> we're at Sunday on the 10th hole. It's a big dog I left, par five. And basically you hit a straight drive and then it goes 90 degrees left. Mr. Kang goes for the <laughs> green. <laughs> and uh, his ball... Uh, I did not think crossed by the green. He thought it did. Uh, 25 minutes later, uh, even Ben Crane played through us. Played through us that day. Ben Crane and Ryan Palmer played through. It's taking so long. Uh, I basically arguing 
what was taking so long? The rules official had to come in. No, or, I just know? he just said he wanted to drop. I said you're not dropping here. Um, then he moved, tried to move back like 40 or 50 yards. Um, said I want to drop here. I said no. Then the rules official finally came in after probably 20 minutes. He's like, you guys have to make a decision. I said I've already made my decision. Like I can't do, I can't like physically restrain him. So they, him and Hoff for another few minutes, and next thing you know, he's dropping closer to the green on the green side of the hazard, about 230 yards. So he went back to like the first spot that you had been like, that's not. Well, it ended up being the second spot. He wanted the first okay. one by the hole. Then we went back like 30, 40 yards. It was not close. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he made a great chip, great putt, made par, and he ended up finishing third and on his way to the British Open. And, um, I decided to, somebody asked me on Twitter that night, it's like, hey, what was the incident on 10? Because it was a half an hour. Uh, you know, we backed up every single group. And, uh, yeah, somebody just goes, hey, what happened on 10? And then I you said he cheated. You just kept it real. And, you used uh, the C word, cavalier. Yeah. <laughs> had a cavalier and, drop. Yeah. You uh, used the wrong C word. <laughs> so that night I'm actually staying at a friend of a friend's house, and he's kind of, He's like half an hour from the golf course, but he's kind of in the boonies. There's no cell reception. So I go to bed, don't think anything of it really. And I wake up and I have like three or four texts. It's like, oh boy. And then I drive, we have to like, you know, pack up and we're leaving Monday. And all of a sudden my phone goes off and then everybody's sending me like, it's on Yahoo, it's on like Apple News, it's all over the place. I'm like, oh, this is, this is good. Apparently you're not supposed to use that word uh, or people take notice. Next up, here he is again, Steve Elkington, episode 204 on a story with Bubba Watson. I'm, I'm sure that none of this story is embellished at all, uh, this is, but this is one of my favorites. Steve Elkington on uh, his showdown with Bubba Watson. Well, he thinks he's whisked, right? I think so. He, <laughs> he said, you know, I think the I line think... was, was, oh, yeah, Bubba, he's a highly uneducated fucking guy, and he knows it. Like, that was one of my favorite lines <laughs> It ever. could be. You know, he probably is. <laughs> but, you on know. the tablets. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, oh, I'm on the tablets. <laughs> I've got anger issues. <laughs> start that one up. What, start that story over. And people have seen the highlight clip yeah. of you guys. They just love that story. You know? it's it's had so nothing, good. It actually had nothing to do with me, honestly. He just snapped. I mean, how many times have you seen him snap? A lot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we were playing. Uh, we were playing this uh, with. I was playing with Shigeki Mariyama and I were leading the tournament on the tenth hole. A course I designed for the uh, for the PGA Tour with uh, Pete Dye. We're playing the tenth hole. We're both eight under. Bubba's not playing so hot, but he hit this drive so far down the fairway. Now Shigeki and I are back here, and all the camera crew are all there. There's a bunch of people there shooting our shots in there so after we both hit everybody moves you know 12 people move up the fairway and he shouldn't have even been there yet he should have been here but he was already out of position he was up there waiting so everyone walked up and bullet my caddy had the bag on his shoulder and hunched it just shifted and, it yeah and when he did bubba snapped and called us you know all kinds of shit and and so I and fucking Roger, fucking veterans, man, fucking, fucking veterans, veterans, fucking veterans, bastards. And uh, so I went up to him, and he wouldn't even turn around. I said, "I'm going to fucking talk to you when we get off the green on 18." And Roger Mopey's over there going, "I've never seen anything like this." Bubba Watson's an <laughs> asshole. Everyone thinks I'm an asshole about it, but anyway, I, I'm not shaking his hand. I'm not signing his card. And when I walked into the scorer's tent, um, uh, there was security in there. And uh, they said to me, Elk, whatever you do, 
don't punch him in the, in the, in the, in the scorer's tent. I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. So anyway, I lit him up in the scorer's tent and I told him I was going to kick his ass and he started crying and told me all this stuff. But you know, to his credit, he did come back to me and say, you know what? I was wrong, blah, 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 whatever. But the great story about that whole thing was we were in the bar later, me and Shigeki Mariyama and a bunch of guys, and we were all just having a few beers. And one of the tour officials said, okay, well, uh, you guys need to write this up. What happened? So uh, I says, okay. So, uh, you know, Shigeki uh, says, uh, I, I, write, I, write, I write up, I write letter. So I said, okay, you go off and write a letter and come back, and I'll read it. He said, you, uh, you edit letter for me? I said, yeah, I'll edit for you, mate. No worries. So he leaves for a while, and we're having a couple of beers, and Shigeki comes back in, you know, real Japanese, real official, you know, half bow. I said, okay, I have a letter for you to read, you know. So okay, I got it. So he says, he's, gonna, he's writing what happened. He, so it goes something like, me, Elkington, son, play 10th uh, hall at uh, golf course, and uh, we in tied lead, hit ball. Bubba Watson hit fucking drive way up here. <laughs> and Elkington, son, I hit ball, we move, and then uh, Bubba Watson snap, say, fuck you, cocksucker, motherfucker, cocksucker. <laughs> And I said, I'm reading this letter. And I go, you're a super writer. This, this is well done. Really? I said, yeah, mate. This is, you don't have to do anything. There's no editing done here. This is, put this straight in the envelope to the tour. This is perfect. That was the funny part about the story. <laughs> Next is Max Homa, episode 212. This was the day after he won the Wells Fargo Championship, talking about the nerves he's battling down the stretch and the thought process of, whether or not he's actually going for the win. Max Homa, episode 212. Yeah, I think the hardest part, and I've actually thought about this quite a bit in, my, in, in just like my, my life as far as like just kind of thinking about other golfers is I've always put this thought up, uh, use this hole as an example. 18 at Torrey Pines. Second shot, if you hit the fairway, it's obviously a risk to go for. I don't care how long you are. If Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, and myself are in the middle of the fairway and we're all tied for the lead, Phil and Tiger have a lot of freedom to go for it. And I, in some respects, could lay up, make sure I make par and not, you know, lose the opportunity to keep my card, right? That's like a serious thought that I think I'd probably have. I've always hoped that I would get up there and think, screw it, we're winning, we're in this position, that's why we play. But I, I don't know, that, that's the hardest part. So the the whole kind of weekend, I kept thinking, man, it'd be great to win, but like, you can't, like, don't screw this up. Like, this is, we got to have some job security. And it's such a weird blend in your brain because you're, I don't want to think like that. I felt, I felt like I was being kind of soft doing that. And, and, and I kept trying to push it out of my brain. And I think as the Sunday went on, I, I did a better and better job of thinking we're winning this thing. You know, screw second, screw third. We're winning this thing. I don't care about the job security. I, I care about winning. Obviously, those things come. Here's one more from Max on uh, his antics coming down the stretch of that win. Club twirl off the 14th tee after laying up. Do you have anything to explain about that? Yeah, that was good. It's like one of those shots. It's like not hard at all, but um, <laughs> it, it feels kind of pressure filled because it's one of those. It's easy to screw up, I guess. So I don't know. I, to everything I did, I realized after I did it, I was like, that's so corny. But it all like, it all just comes out. <laughs> like it's weird. Like I was proud of that shot. So it just starts 
starts twirling. And the one on 18 was the funniest one, though, just because Joe literally ran up behind me and goes, are you freaking kidding me with that club twirl? Are you joking? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm sorry. He goes, don't be sorry. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. You have the biggest balls I've ever seen. And I'm like, all right, cool. At least it looked decent. <laughs> oh, that one was badass. Back to episode 206 with Jordan Spieth talking about his relationship with Augusta, the 2015 and the 2016 Masters, and the reaction to it. What, if anything, what what would you say the main things you learned from 2016 are? Uh, you know, I think the what I learned the most was how much input people put on a certain hole versus the entirety of 72 holes or how one-sided whether it's the public or the media's view is on something without actually diving into the details of why or what happened. It's like, I didn't choke. I legitimately was missing every shot short, right. And it wasn't like the moment was too big for me. I just won the the year before and however many other tournaments I'd already won earlier that season. It wasn't like I got here and the moment got the best of me. It was like, no, I, I just legitimately had this thing wrong in my swing. I hit it right on 11, had to punch out, um, hit it right on 10, had to punch out. Like when the pressure was on that day, I was hitting the ball horribly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't overprotect to hit it left. I made the same mistake of hitting it right, which you can't do, but it wasn't because of it was Sunday at Augusta. It's like, no, it was just like, I just was, I was just hitting it that bad. And unfortunately, that's just not the way it, it can be or would be looked at no matter, you know, what I say, who I say it to, which is okay. Like it is what it is. I don't look at myself as not able to close because, um, I've done that plenty of times before and after. So it's like, that's what makes it weird. It's backwards. It's like you won it the year before and then the disaster happens the next yeah. year. If it was the other way, it'd have been the greatest master story. Well, ever. And if you look at, so 2017, I made a nine on number 15, but it wasn't Sunday. So yeah. nobody really even talks about that, but that was as bad or worse. Cause that was a wedge in my hand in the fairway that I hit like two of them where I shouldn't have. Well, I, I want you to kind of, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and, and, and I was in the second to last group Sunday there. Um, and I think that was maybe Friday. Uh, and so without that hole on, in 2017, I'm in the lead starting the final round, which is actually a better starting position on Sunday than I was in 16. Next up, Eddie Pepperell, episode 202, talking about yips, demons, monsters, all that kind of stuff. Eddie is the absolute best. This is a very, a good one to go back on if, uh, if you get the chance. Episode 202. I had a period a few years ago where I literally had, I get the yips around the greens for like two weeks. And then it went and I was like, I've always been a good chipper and it was purely technical and it, and it literally is, you know, Tiger Woods doesn't just get the yips. I mean, the problem with the yips is people only see it when it's happening and then they think that's a psychological problem, which at that point it is. But how does it start? It never starts as a psychological, a psychological a lead up. It starts as a technical problem and then it's like a monster. You know, everyone's got potential monsters in their pockets or on their shoulders, but it's small and you have to keep them small. The best golfer on the planet is the guy with the smallest monsters. <laughs> it's not the guy that doesn't have any. Every fucker's got monsters. It's just Dustin probably has a great handle on all of his little gremlins. Whereas so that's some the, guys doesn't, it's you know? crazy that you say that like that because I feel like the last two or three years watching Jordan Spieth, 
he's made absolutely everything, but like his the the grip's crazy and he's cross-handed and all that, and like he's making everything and he looks super comfortable with it. But I, I can tell there's a monster on his shoulder. Yeah, it does you look know? like he's playing with a like monster just, on his shoulder now. He's just yeah. like he's puzzle. just trying yeah. to fight off that monster. Yeah. For as long as possible, and now he's finally dealing with that monster, and he's going to be good when he gets to the other side of the monster. But yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. So what? Like, so what's your biggest monster? Well, hist- historically, it was my driver. So you know, and I'm gradually. The thing is, also the hardest thing with golf is that monster can grow so fast, so big, so fast, and trying to shrink him. I mean, it's it's just a, it's a fucking shit show. When you, you know, it probably gets bigger when you're trying to shrink it. Possibly, I mean, possibly, or what probably happens is it actually doesn't. But other monsters get bigger because you're not focusing on them. And then, is, aren't, aren't you like this? Is like life. Like I know we're talking about golf, but this is really golf just is life. life. Yeah, golf is life. For sure. I'm in your front room, and there's just flags everywhere. Golf is life. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying we could change the, some of these words, and we could be having a, a self help a self help podcast on a different topic. Absolutely, you're, we can, we can Eddie, go there. If you're you giving want. me anxiety. <laughs> Tron's monsters um, are growing as we're well, speaking yeah. right now. But that, yeah, anxiety, funny you bring that, you know, that only ever correlated with um, bad technique for me. You know, I would struggle to sleep when I was hitting my driver off the planet. Here's Morgan Hoffman, again, episode 197, talking about the uh, debilitating disease he was diagnosed with and the treatment he went went through and actually traveling to Nepal to get holistic treatment. Uh, this part really, uh, really blew me away, his uh, ability to speak on this topic. After that visit, in Miami, uh, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm looking up complete out of the box situations here and trying to figure this out. So I found online this Dr. Robert Morse, and he's a, I don't know how to describe it. He's a holistic healer, but is just a guy that pursues changing people's diets dramatically and having food cure you um, by eating certain types and certain times and how like how many servings and what type of vegetable all that kind of stuff so ironically he was in Tampa so I drove over to see him and and I still believe in his uh approach to this day it just takes a lot of time uh but he told me he's like look uh, he believes in iridology which is the study of your eyes to tell you what's going on in your body um so like the the membranes like in your pupils or around the edges and all that stuff. And, and then like gives you a full body check and he's like, look, you have great, you have great genes and are very strong. And he goes, if I was trying to fight this disease off, I would want your genes. I was like, well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, now what do I do? And he said, I need you to eat a raw vegan alkaline diet, which is, um, basically just, fruits and vegetables um, and get rid of meat and dairy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I've been, I started not eating meat like a year and a half ago um, and it was awesome and great change and major increases in energy. Um, And then he's like, you know what, if you really want to speed things up, I suggest you start on a, uh, a cleanse. I was like, all right, Great. I've heard about cleanses all the time. You know, let's, let's go. He goes, all right, I want you to eat red grapes for 16 days and just drink water. I was like, all right, let's do it. 16 so, days. Yeah. So I, I bought, I calculated it out like to get a decent calorie account 
amount each day. I had to eat 800 red grapes a day. Uh, so I was eating 800 red grapes a day for 16 days. And in the first four days, I lost 11 pounds and, um, you know, crazy amounts of weight and zero energy, obviously. And his whole thing was like waiting for a, I don't remember the word, but some kind of big thing to happen in your body, like have a fever or start throwing up or, you know, that kind of stuff. And it never really came. And I went back to him and I was like, look, how long is this going to take? You know, I want to get back on tour. Like I can't, I can't be playing golf right now if I'm like, look like a scarecrow. And he's like, I don't know, you know, it's going to work, but it could take two months. It could take two years. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to look for other avenues here. So at the time, my girlfriend, Chelsea, was in Nepal because uh, she loves helping kids. And we, uh, when I was 19, when I was 20, my best friend, Sean Einhaus, who his mother is from Nepal, we started a charity over there and helped build a school and like gave kids computers and that kind of stuff. And I've been over there several times before and I just love the people and so Chelsea was over there helping at Camp Hope. It's uh, to help these kids from the earthquake a few years ago, which they still haven't rebuilt their uh, their cities. And all the parents are rebuilding the cities while the kids go to school in Kathmandu. And so she was there and ran into Sangeeta, who is Sean's mother. Uh, he played at Oklahoma State with me, Sean Einhaus. And they were having dinner one day and um, she's like, yeah, I, I'd love to, for you to meet this doctor. His name is Dr. Kamal Josi and he's uh, a healer and he's cured hundreds of people with cancer and he's kind of ticked that off the list as if you have it, it's easy to cure. And now he's on to muscular dystrophy and he's been treating a patient here with muscular dystrophy and Parkinson's. Uh, for the last few weeks and he's been in a wheelchair for 25 years never walked and um, now he's walking within two weeks and Chelsea's like if you if this situation over there that your big cleanse doesn't work I think you should come try this um, I was like all right well get me more details and the guy's like all right come here for 90 days we'll prepare the herbs just give us like two months to prepare um, and then you can come over and it's a 90 day treatment and I flew over. It was 90 days of herbal Ayurvedic treatment of me just pretty much laying on a bed and then rubbing these herbs that they would mash up in front of me every morning on a stone slab. Um, I would be there for a two-hour session in the morning and a two to two-and-a-half-hour session in the evening. And the stuff smelled terrible. It was like... <laughs> it's not relaxing. It's not a spa. Yeah, they don't speak English. I had to have a translator there. And I mean, it was an incredible, incredible journey. Um, and maybe one of the toughest things I've ever done. But, you know, I think like now when I put my hand on my chest where the atrophy was, where I could just feel ribs. Now, if I flex, I can kind of feel like a little muscle in there, which I've never, I haven't felt since 2011. So, it's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm not making any claims. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, have a public statement and say anything about being cured or whatever, but I'm in the process and I'm, 
uh, still taking these herbs that he gave me and I'm still waiting on a blood test to see if anything has changed genetically because uh, every single day when I was over there, I just studied food. I studied plants and vegetables and how they can heal you and it's just insane like you um you can change your genes and people you know in the in the states north america really don't believe that like you know no one's taught that next up is uh, annika sorenstam episode 189 talking about playing at a men's event at colonial and the nerves that went into that this is someone who is the probably the greatest uh, woman to ever play the game and uh, how much this moment affected her was uh, a moment that has stuck with me throughout this year. And then on to 2003, you win two majors, almost win the other two. But I, I, I could be wrong in saying this. It seems like the 2003 Colonial stands out as the, as the moment of 2003 for you. What was the process like from getting a sponsor's invite into that event to deciding to play? Is it something you always wanted to do? Was there any kind of decision to actually be made there? Or once you got the offer, were you all in? Well, you're right. 2003 was was a big year for me. Uh, you know, again, I'd been number one now for for a while, and I was I still felt like I could be better. You know, in my mind, I mean, I of course I looked at the rankings I looked at, but I also looked at my statistics, and I knew in my mind that I could be better. So I was trying to figure out ways to push me to kind of get there. You know, I practiced with the guys living in Orlando. There was a lot of PJ pros in the neighborhood. I practiced quite a bit with Tiger, learning from him and. You know, I grew up when as a young girl. I mean, it was it was just boys at the club. It, it was my sister, and then the two of us would we would hang with ten boys. It wasn't it wasn't like a gender thing. It was just more we play golf together. So, mm-hmm. so I said, well, I remember getting a question at a press conference where they said, hey, would you ever want to play with a man? And I was like, yes, that's that's what I need. And I said, sure, I would love to. And I remember walking away from that press conference. Mark Steinberg, who was uh, Tiger and a few other guys, agent, and had been mine for a long time. Uh, he said, do you have any idea what you said in there? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm playing with a man. He goes, okay. So this was in January, and then eventually we you know, we decided to play in, at the Colonial, it was called, uh, Bank of America. And um, so I had four months to get ready. And uh, it was it was a great journey. You can call it a journey to get to prepared for, first of all, a longer golf course, you know, different competitors and all the things that I thought I could, that I needed to be ready for. So it was an amazing experience. I mean, I look back at my career and that's certainly one of them that pops up. And it's not so much about how I played. It's more about the experience, the people, the, you know, the lessons I learned and, you know, to kind of generalize it a little bit for, for other people to kind of put there in their own perspective is, you know, we, we get opportunities in our life, but we never know how many we get and, and when they do come and, and, uh, you know, being shy, it's, it's very easy to just say no, because, you know, you maybe don't have the courage or you just wonder, you know, am I going to make a fool out of myself? And, but I said, if you don't say yes, you will never know. And this was that opportunity. I could certainly said no, but I probably sit here and I was still wondering, what it would be like, you know, yeah. if you're going to get better at something, if you want to test yourself, you know, you need to have the courage to say yes. You know, uh, I had four months to prepare and um, I'm so glad I did it. You know, I don't, I really didn't really need to play over the weekend because it wasn't so much again about the golf. It was more about the experience. And I remember going back to the LPJ the, the following week or the week after, and I just had so much more confidence, so much more just belief in myself. And, and I think it's, um, 
that's the reason why I, I highlight that event in my career. Because there couldn't, I imagine that there, at that point, you've already won several major championships. You've accomplished so much on the LPGA scene. I imagine there's not any situation that would have made you any close, that could simulate the nerves that were like teeing it up for the men for the first time. I remember seeing and reading about kind of, you you, were, you struggled to get words out on the first tee. Is that right? I mean, what, yeah. take us to that first tee, the first round Thursday. Yeah. But like you said, I mean, how do you, again, how do you prepare for, you know, what yeah. happens after you win? How do you prepare to play against the men if you've never done that to be on I mean this to me was you know the biggest stage or you know the biggest I mean talk about something I never would have thought I would do you know when I was missing tournament on purpose to yeah. you know fast forward 15 <laughs> years you're gonna tee up and everybody's looking because for perspective no female had played in a PGA Tour event since 1945 yeah. before you so did this. it was yeah. yeah so it wasn't something that was very common right so, yeah, I mean, there was, uh, I remember, you know, a few things. That's the thing is I remember a few things and there's some things I really don't remember, which is funny because, you know, I was there, but I guess I was so focused. But uh, walking down, the, you know, from the putting green to, you know, the first tee, I kind of looked at my caddy and I said, you know what, I'm not really sure we got it, what we got ourselves into. He goes, well, it's a little too late, you know, we're going to be on the tee in, you know, 50 yards. So. But yeah, no, I stood, he told me afterward, Terry McNamara, my caddy, the last, you know, nine years of my career, super guy. And so it was kind of an experience together. But he told me afterwards that I had turned to him before it was time to hit and my lips were moving, but no words came out. Oh my God. And he's, yeah, that's kind of what he said. Oh, (laughs) how's this going to go? So yeah, it it was, uh, I mean, we all deal with nerves differently. You know, I played extremely well from tee to green around the greens that's kind of when I get a little nervous you know I have a tendency to uh, lose the feel a little bit on putts so it could be a speed thing and these greens of course were very fast so and speed is so important when you have undulated greens to to kind of find the combination so but you know I, I had a putt to uh, shoot under par so I mean I was very pleased with my performance and you know to go out there and I mean I knew that the guys I would play with first of all they couldn't have not been any nicer uh, I knew that they would outdraw me with, you know, lots of yards. Mm-hmm. So I always be hitting first into the greens, but just having that mindset. And so, but, you know, again, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? This is another uh, Scott Van Pelt clip. This is from episode 215, talking about eating pizza with Tiger Woods after he won the U.S. Open. Favorite, my favorite Tiger story. 2002, right? That was the year they played there in the U.S. Open? Mm-hmm. Do I have that right? We were three. Two. Oh, two and oh nine. He wins the Masters that he wins the Masters that year. He comes in, sits down for the uh, uh, Sunday conversation. I said, "How are you doing?" He goes, "I'm so bleeping hungry." He said, "I wish I had a pizza." I said, "If you win the U.S. Open, I get your pizza." So what do you want on it? I saw sausage and pepperoni. Run, you know. Okay, fine. File that away. Well, he's going to win the U.S. Open at that date. So we order a pizza. Uh, local spot. We like get like a police escort to get it brought in when it's clear he's going to win. And we've got a sausage and pepperoni pizza. When he comes up to sit down for the conversation, he walks in, looks at the chair, and he goes, what's that? I said, you told me at the Masters, if you won, you wanted a sausage and pepperoni pizza. And he looks at Steiny, and he says, can we eat that? And Steiny said, you just want the U.S. Open, you can do whatever you want. So we shut the door, and we sit there and proceed to eat sausage and pepperoni pizza for I don't know how long. We're talking about the Lakers not doing the interview. It takes forever and the guy from the USGA, I want to say his name was Craig Smith. I'm pretty sure I'm getting it right. He, he remember I told you before, and the, the, the Tigers agents wanted to kill me when I did the sit down at uh, with the Golf Channel. Yeah. 
the USGA guy, I really did think was going to put his hands on me and maybe murder me because all of the press is waiting to talk to Tiger Woods, and he's sitting in this room in a in the back of a clubhouse at Bethpage eating pizza with the idiot from ESPN. The hardest one of all of them to just pick one story was probably episode 241 with Scott Harrington. All he's been through in 16 years playing professional golf, heading to the PGA Tour for the first time. Uh, this interview was done just after he'd earned his PGA Tour card on the Corn Ferry Tour and talks about what his wife is going through. And uh, here is a snippet of it, but I highly recommend going back to episode 241 with Scott Harrington. That's something that um, was really special for us. Uh, part of going back to Greenville when I had met with the tour um, and talked to them about it, you know, as part of my medical, you know, when, when guys go on a regular medical, there is usually a bit of a, some financial assistance, you know, based on your prior year's play, you, you qualify for medical, you know, you get, you get paid a little bit and it's not on the R tour. It's, it's not much at all, but it, but it, you know, it's, it's something coming in and, you know, but for the, for this particular type of medical, since it wasn't my own, uh, it wasn't an injury to myself. Uh, we didn't qualify for that, so we were, yeah. I mean, we were looking, we were in a pretty, you know, it was going to be tough. I, I don't know how or if we could have done it financially. I mean, these medical bills are intense, and uh, not to mention just trying to keep our lights on and all that. And, you know, it's kind of been written about, but uh, Scott Langley's a friend of mine here in Scottsdale and he was on the player board uh, at the time on our tour. And they actually had a meeting in that week in Greenville. And he brought up the idea to the, to the pack, um, you know, Hey, is there any way we can help the Harrington's out with some of the, you know, financially over the course of however long it may be. And then everybody to their credit, like everybody thought it was a great idea. The tour brass decided that they were, you know, going to do put their full, you know, the full weight of their tour and the PGA tour behind it and really try to help us out. And I remember when, you know, when Dan Glaude, the commissioner, I mean, he told me that that was what they wanted to do. I mean, I, my start, I mean, I started, I'm not, I'm not a crier. And I, I just, I kind of started crying right, right there. And I was just like, man, this is, this is, crazy unbelievable that you guys want to do this and it and it took a huge burden off off of me i mean you know for her you know our our concern 100 percent was just doing whatever was necessary to get her better and you kind of worry about the other you know the other things how you're going to pay for you know all that you worry about all that later i mean the first and foremost is just let's get her healthy um but yeah i mean on this tour you know, I, I'm still, I'm still living year to year. Can't, can't afford to have a bad year and, um, you know, much less just stop playing. And so for them to do that was crazy special. But even at that point, I still thought, you know, Hey, every little bit will help. But I mean, my expectations were, I mean, they wanted me to kind of try the best I could to budget out exactly what our, that the rest of that year was going to look like with all our medical bills and living expenses and their goal. I mean, their goal was to, was to get us covered for everything. So essentially I could start out whenever I was able to come back, pretty much be in the same financial situation that I was when I started it. And, um, but I still thought that was extremely ambitious and I, you know, I just, I, I knew every bit would help, but I mean, I didn't have, I had no clue that it would kind of take off the way it did and that people would, really like rally so hard around us and there were some so yeah i mean the players 
obviously it started with players both on the PGA tour and, and corn Ferry, um, you know, chipping in and, and, and that all meant so much just cause I know what it's like to be a player on this tour and we don't have a lot of disposable income and, you know, guys just chipping in, whether it's 20 bucks or 50 bucks and some, a lot more. I mean, there were guys, Sam Burns made an unbelievable pledge that, and I, I, I literally had never even met Sam Burns before. And, you know, I think the first week they had the fundraiser up, they, uh, you know, he, he pledged, I think it was a hundred dollars a birdie for the rest of the season. And that was, you know, there were still probably 12 or 15 events left in the year. I mean, like a gesture like that is just unbelievable, especially for somebody that, you know, you don't even, you don't even know. Next up, episode 249. This is Jim Wagner from Hans Golf Design taking a break from uh, roasting me to tell a cool story about Doral and how professionals were perceiving uh, work that actually uh, made them think. Walk me through this whole process, right? Because the way I understand it is you have to figure out ways to combat how far they hit the golf ball. And you got to make them think about where they want to hit it. And then you do that, and then they cry, and then it goes well, away. You just said the key word, think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is the key word, which a lot of professional golfers, no offense, they don't really want to have to think their way around the golf course. I've said this before, and when we redid the rail for Trump, I don't want to say the golfer's name, because you could probably find it on another podcast. Come on. Billy Horschel. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, seriously, seriously. And he... Uh, it, it was at a uh, maybe like a polo thing at, at the in the pro shop the evening before the event. And they had played they had played a couple practice rounds, right? Now, mind you, we're going into a, a World Golf Championship, right? Zero cut, yeah, right? <laughs> Limited field. Everybody's guaranteed what seventy five grand or whatever Free the number money. is. Yeah. Free money. Okay. What do you think of the golf course? Well, you know, Jim. I, this, you know, I get up to that seventh hole, and you know, and the problem we have is like every, every hole we we have to think. Like there's no <laughs> there's no let up holes. There's no holes that we can just get up there and, and and hit the ball. And I'm kind of looking at it. I'm thinking to myself. I'm like, seriously, you know? I said, you know, most people come Thursday, right? And their normal job of a week are worn out. That's why Thursday is the biggest party night of the week, right? Yeah. You know, because everybody's beat up after four days of work. And here you're complaining, you know. Because after four days, you're going to work for four days and make 75 grand. That's what most people make. That's the average income of most people for an entire year. So, like, comments like that. But, I mean, you have to understand who you're playing with, who you're working for and with is that, and we all know this, is that it can't, and nothing can be their fault. And you know, there's a lot of, prof- no, seriously, yeah. right? There's a, <laughs> lot of prof- there's a lot of professions out there that once you start to bring doubt into your own mind that you're no longer going to be successful. Like, as soon as you start doubting and worrying about whatever, we, we go through this, right? If we're working on a golf hole or working on a golf course or shaping a bunker, and I'm worried about what Gil's going to think or what he would do in that situation, or if I'm worried about what the members are going to think, or if I'm worried about, you know, the tour players or something like that, I'm never going to do what I think is right, okay? So if you start doubting yourself, you're going to change, and now you're not, you're not going to do what should be done. Next is episode 235 with professional poker player Daniel Negranu. He uh, isn't much of a golfer, but maybe gambles the most of anyone I've ever heard of on the golf course. Most gamblers won't uh, won't name numbers, but he, he talks about the actual figures they're betting out there and some crazy bets he's taken on. There was another bet that I made. One night we were out, we were... Uh... We were like this, you know, we we're having some sake and some beers and we we're talking about, and my golf game was not very good. Like the back tees at TPC Summerlin is about 7,000 yards. 
I can't hit a driver more than 230. So I don't hit any of the greens from the back there. But I bet them, if they gave me a year, that I could shoot 80 from the back tees there. So I'm drunk, and we're all drinking, and I bet $550,000 on this. <laughs> and so I have a month to spare, but I get as many rounds as I, as, I, as I need. So with about a month to spare, you know, I go out there, and I'm like, all right, 110, 108, 106. Okay, that's my first three rounds. That's what you're <laughs> starting at, and you had to break yes, 80. Yes, and I have a month. So we woke up at 7 a.m. every day. I went, we practiced for an hour, played 18, practiced for another hour, played another 18, played nine more, and then practiced again. So I would go from 7 a.m. till about 8 p.m. every day. And for, you know, within about a week, I was shooting low 90s, you know, maybe a week later, you know, mid to high 80s. And uh, with about a week and a half to spare, actually, they, I, I was two under after nine. And so then all the carts started coming oh, out because no. they were like, oh, boy, here he comes. There was probably 60 golf carts on the last three holes sweating me. And so when the, in the last three holes, I needed to go bogey, bogey, bogey to win the bet. And uh, there was the three toughest holes also, just the way that it set up. And, of course, you know, on the... The first one is the first one is the easiest of the three, so I of course double bogey that. Mm. Now I need to par one of the last uh, two, and I make par on the, on the second to last one, and then I have a six footer for all the money to win. I I'm, a, I'm actually a good putter, but this putt, I hit the putt, and as I hit the putt, my knees sort of kind of fell to the ground in a way, <laughs> but somehow the ball went in. Next up, episode 254 with Bill Core, another one that was hard to pick, just one story, but I really like how he discusses centerline bunkers here, how they affect strategy, and how he implements them on his golf courses. They're often so effective in just influencing thought and breaking up the, the, the what we saw often for over a period of years or so is the best place to play is the middle of fairway, middle of fairway, middle of fairway. You'd hear that on television. You'd, you know, you just hear it. And the fairways got so narrow that the middle of fairway is the only place you could play almost to be in the fairway. That became a very standardized form of golf, particularly here in America. But Ben and I were both enamored of uh, so many of the old courses that gave you so much more latitude in terms of width of the fairway. But it was not uncommon to see a bunker or a mound, uh, you know, a feature that was some sort of a, a contour that was right in the absolute spot where you most players would most want to be. In some cases, it's the safest spot to be right in the middle. And and so, you know, we would see those old old courses with that with that sort of thing, and we'd read the stories about whether there's a myopia hunt club where they didn't put the bunkers in until, you know, they'd go out and watch, watch the players, the best players play the course and wherever the most, the, the shots of the very best players ended up off the tee is often where the bunker was placed. Hmm. And, and to give the best players uh, to create thought, not just randomly, you know, play between one side and another, like kicking field goals. But if if there's a centralized bunker right exactly where you most want to be, uh, particularly I'm talking about very accomplished players, then a decision has to be made. They're like, ooh, I really want to be as close to that as I can. Do I play short of it, left of it, right of it, or am I capable of hitting over it? 
And that is much more thought-provoking than just an expanse of fairway out there between some heavy rough on both sides. So yeah, there was a, a, a golf architect, I'm sure you've, you've read about Max Bayer from California, who, who actually wrote a whole treatise on this uh, central-type hazards in golf. Uh, he called it the line of charm. And uh, it, it's it's just it's been one of the most interesting aspects of golf architecture throughout history. Here's Jason Bone again talking about his infamous crotch chop moment at the uh, at TPC Scottsdale. All right, you did yeah. a cross trap? Yeah, oh, I'm it 16 was hard Sawgrass. Sawgrass uh, or Scottsdale? Or, I mean Scottsdale. Sorry, yeah, yeah. you would have been the exiled from the tour if you did it at 16 Sawgrass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That uh, it was uh, it was a Sunday, and I was it was great. I was playing with Jason Kokrak. Who is you know big guy six five tall like just would send it and uh, we're on sixteen and he goes um, we both hit up on the green and he's got this red and white uh, shirt on with white pants and we walk up on the green and these guys I mean it was pretty early in the morning uh, maybe noon or something I mean we were we were anywhere near the lead of the tournament and this guy yells out hey cold crack you look like a giant fucking candy cane. <laughs> All right, and on 16, you got to admit, they're pretty witty. They're funny. They're, they say some good stuff. It's pretty funny. And I looked at them, and I played with them all day. And I'm looking at them, and I'm like, you do. You, I, I lost that. I started dying laughing. I was like, you do. You look like a giant candy cane. That's pretty witty. I mean, you got to give it to that guy. So I kind of tip my hat to him or whatever. And then he, we're both about 20 feet from the hole, and he steps over it. And right in the middle of his putting stroke, they yell, you suck. You can't make it. Uh. And and it's okay. I mean, it's one hole. It's fine. And uh, we're in like 35th place, so it's not really going to change it. And he rolls it down there, and he missed. And, you know, I just got up over mine. I had just a few feet inside of him, and I'm like, hey, you know it's coming. And you just absolutely <laughs> know it's coming. As soon as you pull it back, they're going to go, you suck, you can't make it. So I pull it back, and they said, you suck, you can't make it. And I made it. And so I turned to him and I pointed at him and I said, why don't you suck on this? And I gave him the old crotch chop <laughs> and uh, they loved it. They all went crazy. They erupted and they roared and I'm just sitting there going, man, that just cost five grand. You know, is that worth it? You know, I'm thinking that's conduct. I'm becoming a professional. And uh, so I mean, it was momentarily that hit me in. So we get done, we get done playing. And as soon as I finished playing, my phone rings, PGA Tour headquarters. I know it's Andy Pazner. Yeah. It's our guy who does all our fine. Jason, hey, because <laughs> uh, I guess this is right when Golf Channel came on the oh, air or yeah. whatever, you so know, and so they got it. it. And uh, he's like, hey, I just want to ask you on uh, 16 what happened. And it happened to be Scottsdale that night. The Super Bowl was being played. And uh, Seattle was uh, in the Super Bowl. And he said, what was going on? And I said, guy yelled out of the crowd, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I said, Marshawn Lynch. And I gave him the old crutch, because that's what Marshawn does when he scores yeah. a touchdown, you know? And he's like, all right, what really happened? And I'm like, well, that's the story <laughs> that really happened. Yeah. You told Pazder you're just here so you don't get fined. Yeah, I told him that. And he's like, all right, that's pretty good. Uh, you know? And I was like, nah. And then I told him kind of what happened. And he's like, all right. And then... Uh, so, did you get I, fined? I did not. Oh. No, no, they were pretty cool. He but, knows how to talk himself. Well, he just keeps I, talking. I also, he just keeps talking. Then you forget. You're gonna I was also now. sitting on the policy board at that time on the PGA Tour. So that made a difference, maybe. No, I don't know. I don't think that they're biased. <laughs> yeah, they're biased. For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt they're biased. I can't wait for you to get a phone call after this goes up. That's yeah. too perfect. Here's Joel Damon again on uh, with a story on a hungover round of golf. The biggest story uh, of my career until last summer was um, Springfield, Missouri on the web tour in 2015. 
it was my first year out there and uh, I teed off in the morning and you have to make so many birdies there. I think I shot four or five under for two days and I was like, oh, that's going to miss a cut. So we go out and start drinking. Uh, we ended up playing like a par three course under the lights with my caddy and a couple other buddies and a bunch of beer, ended up getting a fireball. Um, and it was late and all of a sudden we check. I have a text from the tour. It says you tee off at 7.30 with Craig Barlow. And I'm like, that's, I, I made the cut. Oh, no. Um, so continue to drink, obviously, because at that point there's no turning back. <laughs> and uh, threw up that night. Gino takes me to Waffle House on the way to the golf course. I hit a couple balls. Um, it's really hot, Springfield, Missouri, in July. It is 100 degrees with 95% humidity and miserable. So now I'm hungover with this. Gino goes to the tee. It's like a 200-yard walk, and I film myself to my buddies walking to the tee. I'm saying this is going to be, you know, this is the death of me. Uh, I love you guys. I'm going to shoot 79 a day and I'm going to like it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll chat, chat with you guys later. And that's like a two minute video that, that kind of went, went pretty big in the, in our small golf world out here. So I don't think it's hit. I don't think it's hit the airwaves yet. Might have to track that one well, down. We, we could change that. I was going to yeah. say, you just sent a lot of people to yeah. go track that down. So we'll see. Uh, uh, nothing's too bad in there. It's, uh, so that was that. I ended up shooting 63 that day made 10 birdies <laughs> i was gonna say but there, there's like a butt to the story yeah however I, yeah i walk off the golf course i'm in third place and uh you went right to sleep i went right back to bed uh and i think i finished eighth or ninth that week locked up my web card for the future year with that with that turning we're going to end this one with two more clips from the paul goidos kevin sutherland episode thanks a ton to everyone for tuning in and for making it this far and we'll see you again in 2020 all the tournaments that Tiger, all the match play Tiger's Tiger won when they didn't change the format had nothing to do with it. It was the McCarran Sutherland final. Yeah. We're like, oh, we got to change the system. Well, <laughs> well it's <laughs> not, but, but in all due respect, Kevin, it's not just that tournament. Well, Every time Kevin played really well at the tournament, they either redid the course or moved <laughs> well, that's Or or when they did the, uh, a he, few years ago when you won. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, they it's changed always, the whole format. It's constant. Like, he, we can't he, have that. We're playing, can't the, have we, play that. The, we play the, we play the Woodlands now on, on the Champions Tour. <laughs> They're it's, Sutherland it's proofing the tour. They did. He, he, we get to know, I, I love the Woodlands. We played there. We play there now on the Champions Tour. Mm. We played there in the Houston Open. Kevin gets in a playoff and loses to, to Phil, Blackmar. Phil Blackmar, moved it to another course. <laughs> Tory Pines. Kevin played well there. I liked playing there. They Tory Kevin played there like three or four years in a row. Redid the golf course. I mean, Reese Jones came in well. completely redid the golf course. <laughs> It, La, La I was Costa. hoping he'd play well at Cog Hill, but you know, because I hated that place. La Costa, the next yeah, year, yeah, they switched the nines. They, they switched nines. They moved every tee back like thirty yards and grew six inches of rock. I'm like, seriously? unbelievable. I'm like, seriously? I was kind of offended. Yeah, like, it's, 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 but it's happened. It's not. It's not an isolated incident. Yeah, no. he, he always used to say he was hoping I'd play well at Cog Hill, so they changed golf courses yeah, it was there. Awful. Um, all right, we got to let you guys out of here shortly, but I got two questions. How many times have you guys been fined in your careers? <laughs> Zero. No been fined. Zero. None? Uh, four. Four times? Yeah. What were the incidents? <laughs> well, one, I will say this real quick before he gets into all four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of them is actually every single player on the PJ oh, yeah, Tour, sure. including a few, few employees, yes. should be chipping mm, in to prepay. to prepay for his fine because it actually they I, but, changed. I, it changed. I'm at the World Series of Golf, which used to be at Akron before it was a World Golf Championship. And I'm leading. I shoot 66 the first round. The only time I've ever broken 75 at Firestone. 
And the first round I play there, and I'm playing Billy Mayfair the second round. We both shot four, and they repaired. I'm in the last group, and we get rained out. So I only got to play 34 holes on Saturday. He played, started at 7 in the morning, and I'm done at, you know, 5 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. And I proceeded 34 holes. I think I made 15 bogeys and 19 pars. <laughs> it's the hardest course in the world, I think. And I go, now I'm from, I go from leading the turn to like 55th place. And so now I can get a flight home. I'm going home after this week to Orange County. I can get a flight home on Sunday night instead of Monday. So I call PJ Tour Travel. Boop, boop, call him. They answer and they go, oh, sorry, you know, we're closed. Our hours on Saturday are from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. Please leave a message and we'll get back to you. And I go, you're open from 10 to 4? Well, guess when we play golf? From 10 to 4. You should be open from 4 to 10. <laughs> and I, every word that I have. I mean, I'm in a bad mood. I mean, I yeah. just shelly shot, you know, 76, It was a voicemail? Voicemail. Every okay. word I got. I mean, I, I, I released the entire vocabulary that I have. I even made up words that, were, that are dirty. And I just went off for about two minutes. And they find me and change the hours. <laughs> I have a random question for you, Paul, too. Uh, you were a, a assistant captain on the 2010 Ryder Cup team. Yeah. You never played on a Ryder Cup team. <laughs> How did you end up in that role? Yeah, so, yeah. That, <laughs> this is a good No story. one knows. I mean, I still, I mean, you really have to ask Corey. So, like, no, you way do, before. You need, you need to ask way, Corey. So, so yeah, because yeah. yeah, I don't really know. So, way before, like, so we're in Mexico playing in that Mayakama tournament. So, Corey may have just been named captain. So, this is not the year of the Ryder Cup. This is the, this is 2009, maybe March. And he goes... I'm, you know, I'm, I say, yeah, I had dinner with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, great. You know, you're gonna be captain, good. You know, he goes, and I'm, I'm picking my assistants, and you're one of the guys on my list. And I said, why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, I was thinking, well, he's probably got 30 people on the list. That's nice, thanks, appreciate it. If you need anything, let me know. And it just kind of whatever. So nothing, nothing really came of it. But I knew, he, you know, I, I play a practice round here and there with Corey, but nothing really came of it. And then we go to Sony in 2010, first event of the year. And I get a call from, hey, Paul, I'm staying in room. We're staying in the same hotel. Can you come down to my room? And I go, okay. And he's got this beautiful room with the dolphin pool right there. It was great. And he goes, I've decided on my captains, and you're going to be one of my assistant captains. And I went, why? I, mean, <laughs> I go, the closest I've ever been to the Ryder Cups when I got up and turned up the volume on the TV. <laughs> That's the closest I've ever gotten. And secondly, I don't get the Ryder Cup. I mean, you got the 12 best American players. You can't figure out who can play with each other. So, this is nonsense. So what were your duties? I go, like, this is no, you? yeah. Well, so that gets even worse. <laughs> so I show up and I, I don't know if I should tell this story. This is who are the other, the other story. Yeah, is, just, is, this, is this the tiger? Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. You got to tell that one. Yeah. So I show up and I guess, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody's even remotely said anything other than why don't you buy clothes that fit that's the most compl that's the biggest compliment i've ever gotten about how i dress how come they don't fit you that that that's it i dress terrible i was going to ask you why you why you always button your that's because i have really top. big neck and really small shoulders okay. and so if i don't if i do unbutton the button then it opens up and i need to wear gold chains <laughs> so right. i have a 19 and a half inch neck dress shirt 20 inch arms it's the hardest shirt in the world so um so on monday we get there we fly in we play they played the tour championship and we take it around and we, we're doing it so we have to bring that to actually bring two outfits to the course the first day 
there's a picture and then you have to change for what you're you actually it's granimals they actually yeah. you show up in your room i didn't pack any so if you show up at your room and they have all your clothes lined up and there's a book you wear this on what we need you to wear every day and it's all it's, there's like yeah there's like a giraffe and giraffe match up the pant and the whole deal so i so so i get the well curry what, what do you want me to do? i don't even know what i'm doing i have no idea i mean <laughs> I, what am i how am i going to help who so, are the other assistant captains Davis Love, Tom Lehman, and Jeff Sloom, and major champions, ex you know, going, what in the world? I'm sure they're kind of going, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. I was involved in the captain's picks, and I picked the wrong guy there. <laughs> they, they, I, I, we got it down to the last, we had Tiger and Stuart Sink and Zach were done. So we had one last guy, and I, and I, picked, I said, you know, we, it came down to, there's a good story, it came down to Ricky Fowler, J.B. Holmes. And I actually had a player, Charlie Hoffman, came up to me. That was like the, after the Deutsche Bank playoff event. Charlie Hoffman comes up to me on Tuesday and goes, if I win this week, would I be considered for a pick for the Ryder Cup? And I go, if you win this week, I'll be more than happy to lobby hard for you. And he won the tournament. <laughs> Charlie Hoffman. I mean, I thought, I would have picked him on the spot. This guy came up to me before the tournament, said, if I win, would I be a guy? And he wins the tournament. Called a shot. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and so we didn't pick him. <laughs> so we came out kind of, well, who do you like? Came with the guys, and I like J.B. Holmes. He had played well at, for, for Azinger. He hits the ball really long. He's a, he's a really good player. And they said, and everybody else liked Ricky Fowler. And Ricky Fowler went and played great. <laughs> so <laughs> Well, he gets a lot of credit for having that one match, but I don't. he didn't win a match at that at that uh, at the, Cup. J.B. Holmes didn't? No, uh, Ricky Fowler He went 0-2-2. Okay. He did birdie like the last four holes to tie the match. That's right. That allowed us if if yeah. if Hunter Mann would have won his last two holes, yeah. would have retained the cup or something. So, I, my job the first for really the first few days was I need to sit at the end of the hallway before the elevator, make sure everybody's wearing the right clothes. That, this is my job. <laughs> that was your duty. And I so was I'm, so hoping that you designed the rain suits, but yeah. continue. No, I didn't. But I was, I would be honest, I was a little surprised when they came up and said, you need to talk to the guy at Sun Mountain. I go, what, what, what we have Sun Mountain, but why? So the rain gear. And I went, they make rain gear? No. Um, yeah, I thought having the names on them was odd, too. Um, so everybody's coming by, and I have to look, and there were gray pants and this shirt and that sweater, blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, boom, 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 boom. Tiger comes out, he's got the wrong pants on. I tell you, you're not wearing, that's the wrong pants. He goes, they're the gray ones. I go, well, they're the other gray ones. And they, I will admit, they looked exactly they're the same color, just a slightly different cut. we got to wear the other gray ones. And I'm some schmo. Goido's is telling me what I'm to wear. I mean, can you imagine being Tiger Woods and having me tell you what you're not wearing the right clothes? Could you imagine that? I mean, it's just, it's unimaginable that that could happen in the world that this guy is telling me I'm wearing the wrong pants. So, so he goes back and he changed. He's always the last guy, too, so. Goes back and changes, and we get in the car and whatever. We do whatever we do that day. Second day, again, I'm sitting there, and the, I, got, I mean, I, I'm like in the penalty box, sitting in the corner here. You know, everybody comes out. Tiger's last guy, and he's got all the right clothes on. Beautiful. So I'm, now I'm gonna get, we go down the stairs. It's me and Tiger and Steve Williams. We're gonna get the caddies run the other wing. We get in the car. It's like a, to take us to the course. We're not. We have like a five minute ride. And I go, Tiger, you're wearing your white belt, right? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, I need to see the belt because he's got a sweater. I'm wearing the white belt. I need to see the belt. And he kind of <laughs> gets up out of the car, goes upstairs and switches. But Steve Williams is, is looking at me like knives are flying out of his eyeballs at me. He's wearing the wrong belt. He wasn't wearing the white belt. You did your duties well. So he has to run back upstairs and change belts. 
And uh, that's why. But they, after that, that, that's why they put you in charge yeah, of yeah, clothing. Yeah. Because I, I have that. I have that. Yeah. You know, if 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 the holes cut in the wrong place, I could care less. But you know, the little things just drive me. Bonkers. To this day, you don't know why you were selected as an assistant. Captain. He thought. Well, I think he was looking for. Hey, look, he, everybody has outside thought, the box. Yeah, yeah. That was his thought process with yep. me. I lied. One last one, Max Homa. This is Kim calling us after he had just won the Wells Fargo, feeling the emotions just a few minutes after sinking the final putt, and uh, giving a shout out to the FedEx Cup team. That is officially it. That's a wrap on 2019. We'll see you guys in 2020. Are you serious hey. right now? <laughs> I tried calling you, dude. Are you serious? I called you and your voicemail is full. Uh, you got the, you called the wrong number, probably. Are you serious? Did you just dude, win? Dude, yeah. I thought you were, I thought you were more mad about the podcast. No, no. Are you kidding me? You just won. <laughs> yeah, shout out Big Randy. That team is making a comeback. <laughs> but I got I to gotta run. I don't know if you're with the boys, but tell them I said what's up. I got to run real quick. But, I'm in uh, Philly. Let's chat I'll, tomorrow if you got Yeah, I'll call you. I'll call you tomorrow. Just text me. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.